Hey, everybody, it is Friday, and you know what that means. Settle in, get yourself a happy hour cocktail because mm. it's a variety show and it's a thick boy. First up, though, we are trying because we have so much great content today. We're trying a new format. Let us know what you think. Rapid fire news. Yes, it's five for five Fridays, everybody. Five for five <laughs> on a Friday. That's my uh, Z100 radio voice. Molly and I are going to run through five awesome stories, five topics, and uh, five minutes each. And we'll mm -hmm. see. Five times five is 25. Can we do it? You'll find out next. We talk about Rivian, Nicola, Fisker, NFTs crashing, the creator economy surging, a little tail of Lorenz dunking, Biden's crypto executive order, freedom, and Molly's favorite, her Peloton. crush on the new Peloton CEO. I do. I love him. We and love him. Not, I got a man crush. It is Love Taylor it. Lorenz shout out day, not yes. dunk day. Enough of that. Then she's, I talked to. No, she's dunking on other people. Oh, yeah, yeah. She's totally dunking I mean. with her awesomeness. Yes, there yes. you go. Then I talked to Jay Malik of Countdown Capital for Angel Season 6, a guy right up my alley with his investment thesis. Absolutely. And finally, producer Rachel with another edition of OK Boomer. It's a long interview. She jumped the fence on this one. She's going long. I think she's coming for us, Molly. I know. Look out, but I think it's worth it. And it's going to be a great show. Stick with us. Season six of Angel is brought to you by Embroker. Embroker's startup insurance program helps startups secure the most important types of insurance at a lower cost and with less hassle. Save up to 20% off of traditional insurance today at Embroker.com slash twist. While you're there, get an extra 10% off using offer code twist. LinkedIn Jobs, a business is only as strong as its people, and every hire matters. Post your first job for free at linkedin.com slash angel. And rCrowd. rCrowd helps you invest early in pre-IPO companies alongside professional VCs. If you're interested in investing, you can join rCrowd for free at O-U-R-C-R-O-W-D dot com slash angel. Hey, everybody. It's Friday. We've got too much show for you. We do news. We do interviews. And then we got Rachel reporting. She jumped the fence. She decided, I'm going to start doing long-form interviews. Okay, I can't control the show anymore. I've totally lost the script. So we're, we're getting into the two-hour shows. But we got so much news, Molly, <laughs> heading into the weekend that really? you want to comment on. I want to comment on. This docket is insane. It's loaded. So we are, we're trying a new format, aren't we? We're trying a yes. new, like a lightning round where we're putting producers in charge of shutting our faces after a certain amount of time this yes. is I, this appeals to me in the radio way which like is like it. we've got five minutes per segment tops so here we go here we go first scoop taylor lorenz has been at the washington post five minutes mm -hmm. and already has this freaking fascinating scoop today about how on thursday we're recording this friday the 30 top tiktokers were hosted by press secretary jen Psaki on a zoom call to receive information about the war in Ukraine. That Boom. is extraordinary. Mm -hmm. Congrats to Taylor Lorenz. Uh, that too. I, yeah. I know she's been getting in a lot of back and forth. Um, there was some article in between her New York Times and then she took a book break. Friend of the show, Taylor Lorenz. We'll have her on again. She did a great appearance. We had a great back and forth. Um, and then uh, she's at the Washington Post. But before she went there, it was, I don't know if you saw the whole brouhaha where she's like, oh, yes. New York Times doesn't let you build a brand. True. Uh, and yeah, not that you would have an experience <laughs> in this. So that was kind of interesting. And then her Washington Post future colleagues then proceeded to have a dunk fest on her. What? Yeah, you didn't see this. I didn't see that part. It was pretty controversial. And then, then, then that created a second media cycle 
of New York Magazine and everybody else saying, here's all the best dunks on Taylor Renz, because she said, listen, you if you're uh, a journalist now, you got to build a brand. I tell you what, she's right. She's absolutely right. She's 100 percent right. But these old school journalists are like, we're reporters. So well, there's she's reporters. Also absolutely right about the New York Times letting some people build brands and not everyone. And it's the picking and choosing and gatekeeping that is the mess. However, here she is with a scoop about because one of the things that she, I think, has struggled with is the New York Times respecting her actual beat for one mm. thing. Right. And then this idea of like, is this beat important? Is the creator economy important? Does what these crazy kids are doing on TikTok really matter? Well, okay. It turns out that among other things, yes, we have all realized in the past five or six years that information warfare is a thing that mm -hmm. the information people see and particularly young people see is incredibly important. Mm -hmm. And that in fact, TikTok is a place that young people are going for information. And so I think it's actually very smart and progressive and they must have some people under 165 years old in the white house who were like we need to talk to prominent tiktokers so that they can you know get our message out congratulations for taylor for getting the story number one incredible yes. scoop so for all the you know say okay, what you boomers want. dunking on her you mm -hmm. didn't get this story and she did so she just came in and literally hit a half court shot or dunked on your all asses so mm -hmm. yeah, i think you got to bow down to the queen here she came in there and set the tone the Zoom call covered uh, the U.S.'s goals in the Ukraine and answered questions covering distributing aid, working with NATO, and how the United States would react to a Russian use of nuclear weapons. This is important work because young people are getting their information from TikTok, from podcasts. And this is what this administration and the Democratic Party and our government needs to do. There mm -hmm. are a bunch of people out there talking and communicating. They become influencers. Dare I say... They should do this with podcasters. Not, I mean, we're informed. But I do yes. think if, I don't know, two or three years ago, the Democratic Party had sat down with Joe Rogan, who is voting for Bernie Sanders and who is, you know thinks Michelle Obama should run for president. He is mm -hmm. a lifelong Democrat who is the most left-leaning guy. They should have sat him down and said, here's what is happening with COVID. Can we give you the latest information? Can we give you inside information? And do that with 20 podcasters, you know, the ones on the right, the left, you can bring Ben Shapiro into this, whoever, like, yeah. and just say, if you want, we'll brief you and bring them into the tent. So you're all on the same side. I give the Biden administration incredible credit. I give Taylor Lorenz incredible credit for getting the story. Mm -hmm. A plus on both. A plus um, on both. Completely agree. And to those wondering, you know, mm -hmm. off the, <laughs> off the top of their heads, if this is government sponsored propaganda on TikTok. Yep. And the reason it's there is to counter the spread of misinformation that's government sponsored propaganda on TikTok. So like, th there's nothing wrong with having an honest conversation with people about what you would like them to take away, right? We do that when we meet with companies, <laughs> with founders, yeah. with PR people, like, well, this is an incredible to engage Gen Z at this level and not act like this so stuff smart. doesn't matter is a super pro move. But, but let's be clear, propaganda is when, you know, it's bias or misleading. Yes. So this is pure information. So it's information so that hopefully you can unpropaganda the misinformation. Um, I don't think we're trying to give them bad information, right, Molly? Um, we're trying to win an information war against people with propaganda. Right. And look, I, I, we can't debate the semantics. For one thing, we only have 20 seconds left of what yes. is or is not propaganda. But if somebody's okay. saying one thing, you should counter it with more information. That's just simple. Bingo. Yeah. All right. Next story as we move along here. And if you're watching this on YouTube.com, says this weekend. 
you will see a nice infographic rivian stock is down 79 percent of its peak as of noon eastern on friday and its valuation has compressed from a high of 150 billion dollars down to 35 billion after cutting its 2022 production forecasts in half molly you want to give us a couple more numbers here uh yeah there are so many let's see q4 results you said 55 million dollars in 2021 revenue uh negative gross profit of 383 million dollars from selling and delivering about 900 vehicles in 2021 uh they produced about 1400 vehicles so far in 2022 that's as of march 8th i can't imagine they produced many more since then uh, as we're recording this on the 11th they produced about a thousand cars in 2021 and they have ouch 83,000 pre-orders so mm. that's like if a restaurant's orders are real backed up yeah yeah they're in, <laughs> um, in the weeds as we say in the weeds though yeah exactly the pre-orders by the way did include a fully refundable thousand dollar deposit so even if rivian is treating that as a little bit of a revenue it's not very it's not very much not a ton all right you, you guys know my position on this nonsense i, I called it out early on I said on episode 55 of All In, listen, Rivian's worth 20 billion. And I came to that calculation because I had 17 billion in cash. So I put the enterprise value at 3 billion. 3 billion is amazing. That's a unicorn. If I invested in a company and it became worth 3 billion, I'd be stoked. 150 billion was a pipe dream. It was nonsense. Uh, right now, Rivian's trading at 35 billion. And yeah. they have about 18 billion in cash. So I'm, I'm not sure how they get that little bit of extra cash. I will say a $1,000 deposit to me is meaningful. I think anything over $500. Oh, for sure. You know, somebody's got to think about that, put for it the on consumer, their credit card. It's a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. So I give them a lot of credit for that. I give them a lot of credit for the product. I give them a lot of credit for making a product that I think is pretty compelling. You know, it's got a lot of cool features and obviously people really want it. Good looking truck. Good looking truck. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, $67,000 is not cheap, but, you know, those trucks, you know, the high end trucks go for even more than that, like an F 150 if you're getting there. Okay. But reality wise, if they're, you know, only producing 700 cars a month, like, maybe we can give them credit for 10 or 15 this year, I would be shocked. If they hit 25k, I will put their deliveries, the over under at 17,000. Uh, this is a train wreck, yeah. uh, because of the valuation. And yeah. it's a lesson to everybody. When the market goes out, everything comes back down to performance, not promise, and you should not give this much credit to any company. You have to look at the fundamentals of public companies. If you're betting on momentum, you are going to lose all your money. And there are bag holders here, which are the public who bought some pipe dream. This company will not be worth 150 billion uh, ever again, is my prediction. If it does become worth 150, it would be between 10 and 15 years from now, maybe 15 mm -hmm. years from now. It's going to take a long time. The stock's going to go down to 20 billion, is my prediction, maybe 25 billion uh, in the yeah. coming months. It's a disaster. I'm looking up Amy, Amazon's investment because the other thing I wonder is, you know, at what point, so they, Amazon has a 20% stake mm -hmm. in Rivian. Um, hopefully Amazon is not sitting there waiting. This is a bit of a side note, but I hope that Amazon is not just sitting there waiting for Rivian to produce trucks so that it can convert its fleet. <laughs> like, please go ahead and buy other electric vehicles in the interim. Or hybrids or high gas mileage, like whatever you got to do. But, right. You know, it, but I think great that they have this investment, but. Sure. So you got to dovetail this with Trevor Milton's uh, episode 1090 appearance. That is going to zero. I think nickel is trading at 3 billion right now. That company is right. worth 100 million. That company is going to be sold for parts. Anybody who buys that stock is a moron. Sorry. Yeah. And if you own that stock and you don't sell it, all money has value. Losing 90% of the 
you know, 10% you have left is just, you might as well take the 10% and put it into something that could 10x and maybe you get even. Mm-hmm. Nikola only has 497 million in cash. Uh, they're going to run through that real quick. Um, it just like the whole thing just sort of feels like, I mean, it's just, it's like American celebrity culture playing out in the stock market, right? It's like, oh, it's a big, sexy launch. And then in Rivian's case, oh, they've got Amazon and Ford on board. And they don't understand that like when an Amazon or a Ford or even GM, which I think GM may still be an investor in Nikola, because it's like a rounding error for them. Sure, they can place that bet. Like, they're like venture capitalists placing a bet. But it seems, but it gives the imprimatur of incredible legitimacy Yes. To a company like Rivian when it goes out to the stock market, and frankly, investors and or the computer algorithms should be smarter. I encourage everybody who's new to the stock market to not get confused by vanity announcements and metrics. Vanity announcements and metrics are ones that don't include a customer buying something or a product being delivered. So any announcement, Amazon put in orders, like this, this stuff's not binding. When people get the product and they're delighted with the product, that's how you evaluate companies. If you're evaluating a company based on, you know, Nikola maybe having a letter of intent, which means nothing, all of this stuff is designed to create substance where substance does not exist. If substance mm-hmm. existed, like Ford or Tesla or Amazon or Uber or DoorDash, they would talk about the number of orders, the number of rides, the number of cars delivered, yada, yada. It's a disaster. Nikola and Fisker, I believe, both go to zero um, because you now have, I mean, how many of the established bikes? You just did the, was it the Audi you reviewed that was excellent? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then you bought another EV from another company that- I did. I bought a Polestar. And it's good or great? Yeah, it's great. Awesome. So here we yeah, go. Like, that's a this good is no longer car. Tesla versus hybrids. This right. is like Tesla figured it out and it's a juggernaut. And now you have the other juggernauts who are going to come in second, third, and fourth. There is 100%. no room for Fisker. There is no room for Nikola. And there's likely no room for uh, Rivian, all due respect. Fisker, $1.2 billion in cash. They're going to run out of cash probably in the next two years. I don't think it's going to be able to raise money again. That company has been restarted. I think this is the third time they you know, shocked it with a defibrillator and brought Fisker back from the dead. The right. cars are terrible. Uh, I know somebody who bought one of the original ones. Um, and then I saw like, there's all this nepotism going on. I don't want to get into it, but um, stay away from these stocks and buy the companies that actually deliver cars if you really want to. It, this is a good um, startup investor lesson also. I'm going to quickly explain one crucial type of insurance that all startups need. It's called ENO, Errors and Omissions Insurance. And it's going to really help you scale because any major customer is going to ask you for your ENO insurance to close your deals with them. So if you don't have business insurance, you're going to have failed one of the first steps of being a great founder. You have to have insurance because you got a lot at stake. You have investors, you have employees, you got customers, all of these stakeholders and customers expect you to be running your business properly. And that means having startup insurance and startups should look no further than in broker and brokers technology saves you time and money prices are up to 20% lower with better coverage than the incumbents and you can go from sign up to quote to purchase in just 10 minutes when you work with a broker instead of the incumbents you're not dealing with large slow corporations the sign up takes days not weeks and the process is completely transparent with no opaque pricing 
Uh, God, man, I used to have to deal with 10, 20 years ago, all these legacy companies. It was the most painful thing in the world. And that's why I'm broker so brilliant. And I'm so happy to tell you about it. You can instantly buy custom built insurance for startups by going to embroker.com slash twist. And while you're there, you're going to get an extra 10% off by using the promo code everybody loves most TWIST twist this week in startups. Get that 10% off at embroker.com slash twist. All right, next, we are overtime already. We're only on no, our second no. story. Oh, We're already over, biffing okay. it. All right, it's okay. A little overtime. <laughs> We're not biffing it. We're doing all right. We're going to get it back. Um, according to a Financial Times report, daily trading volume on OpenSea is down about 80% month Oof. over month in March. 80% dropping from, mom's talk about going to zero, dropping from almost $250 million a day to 50 million dollars a day this also at least according to morning brew is the one-year anniversary of that um people Beeple, amazing uh, P- the people nft selling for 69 million dollars yep and shout let's out let's see what's his name covid no not covid uh, uh, covid <laughs> i think so bought it? yeah so you see this trading volume declining the numbers are fascinating right the the selling price has dropped 48 percent since november selling price of an average nft i mean the average price of a board ape has dropped about 44% over the past two weeks since the Russia-Ukraine conflict began. The number of weekly active accounts buying and selling NFTs fell like 49% from 380,000 in November to about 194,000. And then another Financial Times piece noted that if you measure the NFT industry by total active accounts rather than dollar amount, then the industry does seem pretty small, although pretty small is evidently something like $17.7 billion in 2021. I guess the really fundamental question here for Jason is like, where are we on the bubble meter? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So a couple of things in the, I mean, we should just pull up the tulip mania chart at some point yeah. here. Uh, this is tulip mania all over again. You guys can look it up, but there was a mania here around NFTs. They have no intrinsic value. The only value they have is in scarcity, which is built into, you know, blockchain and NFTs. And they're one of one, except there's an unlimited number of them that are created. So they're one of one in billions. So you know how they say like each snowflake is unique? Yes, but there's a billion of them every time you have a snowstorm. And then there's (laughs) like a million snowstorms. So we're talking about quadrillions of, you know, these things. So really good point. That's a really good analogy. (laughs) Yes, they're they're all unique. Like, and this is what I tell young people. Like, yes, you are a unique snowflake. I know your parents told you, but you're one of like a billion in like the next hour of snow dumping on Tahoe. Mm -hmm. So- the other thing is that NFTs were a total grift and a totally manipulated market. That doesn't mean the art that was created was not gorgeous and of value in many totally. cases. That doesn't mm-hmm. mean the underlying technology is not brilliant. That doesn't mean the people at OpenSea are not brilliant. All of that can be true. And also, this the playbook for NFTs was built on a scam. So here's, the, here's Tulip Mania. You know, imagine you bought on the way up here and like, then it flatlines and then nobody needs any tulips. Bottom mm-hmm. line. I would say 90% of the traffic was painting the tape and false trades. That's my estimate. I would not be surprised, again, if 90% of the trades were insider trading. In fact, was it OpenSea that had an insider trading instance? One of the two platforms had an in- insider trading instance with one of their senior employees that they had to let go. Right. If the senior em- It was OpenSea. It mm-hmm. was OpenSea. OpenSea had somebody internally front running. If the people inside of OpenSea are front running, what mm-hmm. are the people launching these projects do? I can tell you when you go on Signal or Telegram or Reddit or Discord, there are rooms filled with anonymous accounts painting the tape and they call the rooms like pump. 
and they come up with ways to pump the stuff. They created false trades. That's why the trades are collapsing. Maybe OpenSea is starting to police the false trades. Who knows? Uh, but it was that was never reality. People were trading between themselves, and even Melania Trump reportedly bought her own NFT. Bought her own NFT, yeah. So if Melania Trump, uh, OpenSea employees, or empl an, an employee singular, who knows, and then everybody else is manipulating this market, and you're, you're buying these things in the last year, you're the bag holder, you lost all your money, period, full well, stop. That's what I wonder about the people who are left in our last minute, I believe. Who is... Um, Who's left? Like when you look at the trading volume declining, are the people left, are they bag holders or are they like the remaining savvy investors who are scooping up deals? And because, right, when a thing is like super hypey like this, it can go through a hype cycle, then a crash. And then after the crash is when it finds an actual landing sometimes. I mean, it's not like mm -hmm. tulips are incredibly valuable. <laughs> but Beanie babies? Yeah, know. fair enough. So bag holders uh, then. Yep. Yep. I mean, I think if you look at Fisker, Nikola, NFTs, ICOs, uh, the, and we saw dot com companies like what are the shares of the globe.com worth? They're still worth right. zero, right? They became worth, you know, the company was worth billions. And now it's worth zero. Things go to zero. This is the hard lesson people are going to learn. This is why when you invest so in something, if it's an investment, you're looking at the intrinsic value of its ability to generate future cash flow, which means there's a product and a service and a customer and all those dynamics. And here you didn't have any of those dynamics. So you're just buying stuff that doesn't you exist. Think it's pretty or you're gambling. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Amazing. We're doing, we, we're back on track. There was some very interesting news in addition to the White House meeting with TikTokers uh, coming mm -hmm. out of the creator and influencer economy over the past couple of days. And by interesting news, I just mean so much freaking money. Yum, yum. <laughs> Friday, Friday beers which I had never even heard of, right? Started as a comedy Instagram account two years ago, just raised $6 million and rebranded as Almost Friday Media, which is funny. Mm -hmm. The Friday Beers Instagram now has 1.6 million followers and they've created some other accounts. They've got a little over 2 million followers on all Instagram accounts, 700,000 plus followers on all TikTok accounts. They make money by selling merch, staging live events and working with sponsors. It's basically a community building company that just raised six million dollars speaking right. of product and future revenue where do you see where do you see this falling i mean creators are the new distribution is how i look at it so yeah. mr beast is like in a way disney or walmart so like disneyland if you have a store there or you have a store if you had a store in the mall if you had a store on main street or you had shelf space in walmart or target that's distribution the new distribution is cardi b rihanna uh, Mr. Beast, all of these influencers that have millions, tens of millions of followers on social media, when they talk about a product, it grows. And so mm -hmm. the Kardashians fall into this as well. I saw that Kim Kardashian, I think, raised at $3 billion. And so if you combine any kind of product alignment or a brilliant product that gets product market fit with a Mr. Beast, and I think Mr. Beast has tried a couple of things. I don't think Mr. Beast's burger stuck or was very good, but that's probably a lesson for him. So if let's say there was a Mr. Beast burger 2.0 or chicken wings, or he's doing a chocolate bar now, if that product was truly exceptional and transcendent, then you could have a supernova like event, mm -hmm. free distribution, right? Free distribution, digital, free distribution. So I think one of the Kardashian sisters um, makes lip gloss. Is it Kylie? 
The one who makes the lip I think product. Kylie makes, I think Kylie makes so, the lip product? I think it's Kylie. Uh, yes. Uh, producer Rachel, Rachel says, says yes. yes. Producer Rachel says yes. Thank you. Uh, Gen Z producer Gen- Rachel. Yeah. Um, so what that means is like, it's on brand. She wears it. She's an Instagram model, right? A notable model, I believe, mm-hmm. is her mm-hmm. skill set. And it's on brand. Yeah. Like, and it has product market fit. And from what I understand, it's pretty fantastic. So... Um, that thing supposedly with the drops i was talking to somebody they said like you don't understand this thing is selling out every time she does a drop it sells out it's got incredible margins no distribution cost sell direct they don't need to be on amazon they create a landing page instagram youtube landing page done so this is the future and um it's pretty amazing they just need to make better products they do. Also, I wonder if a pink flag for this future is the platform-based distribution because you do still see these creators. It's free distribution, but on someone else's platform. Like it sort of it harkens back a little bit to the question, the conversation we had about Facebook taking, you know, mm-hmm. who's that guy? Joe Spicer, the hundred million dollar, the hundred million yeah, yeah. dollar business to zero. Now this is different in some ways, except that it still is totally dependent on being able to get traffic through these platforms and then sell products and i feel like if there's a risk factor for the creator economy the only thing le- the only thing i see there is the platforms yeah. immediately what i thought of with this uh friday beers thing was what if that account gets turned off on instagram right so what they need to do is collect emails collect phone numbers sms so they can send messages get those each one of those is worth 10 or 100 of the followers on tiktok etc so that's what any creator has to do. I talked to Mr. Beast about this. He didn't have a lot of emails. I said, you need to take every, your team's mission should be to convert 2% of subscribers on YouTube to emails every month and just yep. compound that over time. And maybe in three years, you'll have this incredible base of emails. So you can just email people and their phone numbers um, and don't be dependent on any one platform. So if you look at the Kardashians, they have a TV show or had a TV show. You know, they have Twitter. They're incredible on Instagram. They're incredible on TikTok. I don't know if they engage YouTube. You've really got to be multi-platform. You really do. Uh, See also Taylor Lorenz, you need to own your own brand independent of the big name that is distributing you because they are not your friend. Taylor Lorenz. You are your stories. only friend. So well said to dovetail the two stories into a callback because people want to read a Taylor Lorenz story now. Yep. And it doesn't matter if it's in the Atlantic New York Times uh, or at Washington Post. And, uh, you know, at this point, Substack's probably thinking, let's send her 500K. And yeah. the same thing with Kara Swisher, who's a brand unto herself, or you and I. You yeah. Know, Kara Swisher was on Recode and Vox. And then New York Times was like, oh, Jim Bankoff did all this work at Vox, making Ezra Klein and Kara Swisher into brands. New York Times like, we'll take those two. We'll take them. And they just took them. Yep. So Ezra Klein's out. And so now it's like New York Times, like you said, is the Amazon of content. Boom. They're just going to run the deck. But those, hopefully those creators are also smart enough to understand that the platform doesn't love you back. So it's all about owning your own brand. That's it. It's a new year, but for some businesses, it's harder than ever to find and hire the qualified people they need. This is especially true for small businesses, and that's where LinkedIn Jobs comes in. They make it easier to find the people you want to talk to faster and for free. We love it. We've used it many times here. In fact, we just hired an awesome video editor just last week. LinkedIn Jobs is the best. You're looking for talent? That's the place to go because when you create a free job posting in just minutes, you're going to reach the world's largest professional network of over 770 million people. Wow. Use screening questions to filter out all the non-serious candidates, right? Hey, if you're going to hire somebody to be a video editor, you can say, hey, what tools do you use to do video editing? If you're hiring them to do podcast video editing, you say, hey, what's your favorite podcast out there? 
If they can't answer those two questions, uh, they really qualify for the job? Probably not. And you can use LinkedIn's simple tools to quickly filter and prioritize who you want to interview. That's why small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. So here's the CTA, the call to action. LinkedIn jobs helps you find the candidates you want to talk to faster. And did you know every week nearly 40 million job seekers visit LinkedIn? And did you know every week nearly 40 million job seekers visit LinkedIn? That's why we hired our video editors so quickly. So post your job for free at linkedin.com slash angel. That's right, for free linkedin.com slash angel to post your first job for free terms and conditions do apply because they're giving you a free job posting and then finally the biden administration released an executive order related to crypto on wednesday we didn't get a chance to this is how bonkers this week has been <laughs> there was like an executive so order on crypto and we were like we I, we can't we don't even have time for this but this is very interesting this is a moment i think mm. in yes. the crypto economy so the order mentions the following it tasks the department of commerce with establishing a framework to allow the u.s to dominate in crypto mentioned exploring a state-backed cbdc a central bank digital currency or fed coin as it's been called this is this sort of like spin-off idea where we've got a stable coin but it is in fact backed by federal reserve dollars and then asked federal agencies to up their action on illicit activity in crypto and its potential national security risks yeah, I mean, this is a this is big news um, because it's an executive order and they uh, want to engage and win. I will say I have been and I've said this for a long time. These uh, CBDCs, central bank digital currencies are the future and no country is ever going to allow the control and power that comes from running money to be handed over to an anonymous manipulated tech stack. It's just yep. not going to happen. Yep. And I know that that's the dream for everybody that like, you can't stop BitTorrent. You can't stop Napster, but we're all subscribed to Disney plus and Hulu and Netflix. Yep. It did get stopped. And so, I do. Sorry and if and I'm and Spotify. No, it's true. Spotify. We've seen this cycle. We've seen this before. And we've seen this with stuff that was relatively trivial compared to the world's reserve currency. Correct. So yeah. what's going to happen here is, and I, I predicted this forever, and everybody was like, you don't get it, Jake, I'll have fun being poor. The US government <laughs> is going to have, <laughs> thanks, mm, mm, little chance of that with the number of startups. We're I know, I'm in. like, uh, uh, I'm always on the inside. She's like, we're, we're putting I'm some money in I'm not that worried. I'm not yeah, that not worried. worried now. CBDC. <laughs> it's kind of funny that it's CBD, right? <laughs> it totally is. <laughs> the Fed coin will uh, allow the government to do all kinds of interesting things get rid of fraud, get rid of illegal transactions and a uh, tax evasion. So mm -hmm. if people are gambling, or they're handing envelopes to each other, or, you know, you know, sending $5,000 things, you know, like 1099s and W4s and all this reporting that happens in accounting is all going to be built in to a private blockchain called the US government, you're mm -hmm. not going to be able to cheat on your taxes, you're not going to be able to hide revenue. You're not going to be able to give inheritance on the slide and pretend it's something it's not. This is going to be a tax um, bonanza for the IRS. And if somebody does something illegal, it's going to be instant seizure. So somebody does something illegal or they don't pay their taxes. I guarantee you in 10 years, the government, if you didn't pay your taxes, will just boop, take your dollars off the blockchain. So mm -hmm. this is about control. It's going to mm -hmm. be more control for the government, less fraud, which is good for the people who are good actors. Uh, and then anything that's Bitcoin or USDC or Tether, God forbid, or any of these other projects, 
are going to be taxed. Mm -hmm. They're going to tax them. And they're going to say you can be this big. So they're going to say if you if you're this big, you need to have this set of regulations, as I predicted. And then if you're this big, you're going to this that and you are gonna get taxed at these rates. In other words, they're going to make it impossible to compete against FedCoin. Yep, exactly. FedCoin and, wins. That's what this is about. Let's be 100% clear. This is the United States has been way behind the ball here. And yes. the moment of freak out for them was when China announced that it was about to introduce a digital currency because that digital currency, should it get to be traded on the margins between countries that we now realize might not have the best of intents toward the you know world order, if you will, could upset the dollar as the world's reserve currency could also start to be a preferred option for countries and companies. And all of a sudden, and I, I mean, listen, I interviewed the head of the F, the incoming head of the FDIC in 2019 and was like, what is the United States government doing about Bitcoin and cryptocurrency? And she was like, I don't know, we're kind of looking at it. And it yeah. was not six months later that China was like, we're doing a digital currency that is 100% government controlled and backed. Yeah. And now you see this move. That is not a coincidence. Yeah. I mean, the ECNY, which is the digital one, uh, some people call it the digital renminbi. Um, mm -hmm. Uh, this was launched January 4th officially in 2022 before the Olympics, and uh, you can get it on Android, you can get it on your iPhone. One billion users uh, in WeChat have it, and uh, games, are, before the Olympic Games, they forced, I believe, McDonald's to take it. So, you know, the Chinese government, because it's a dictatorship and an authoritarian, they can just say, this is how it is. And in an authoritarian country, let's say you say something against the government that they don't yeah. like, or you buy a book that they don't like. They can just seize all your money. They mm -hmm. can just turn it all off. So this is going to be uh, something crazy to navigate. It's going to create more control, less fraud. You know, China, and, we have no choice. Like To your point, we, more, more surveillance. Like, don't kid yourself. That is a part of this. It's about control. And so yeah. we do need to have a discussion about freedom and not getting rid of, we cannot get rid of print money. Just like. Right. You should still be able to drive a car that doesn't have a low jack in it. So we're going to need, there's going to be some freedom principles here. We embrace digital currency if people want it, but you still got to accept cash. The moment they say you can't accept cash in the United States, yep. that's when we go into authoritarian like danger zone. So be careful, folks. Call us White House. We'll help advise you. All around the world, tech companies are innovating and driving returns for investors. And our crowd is an investment platform that analyzes many of these companies across the global private market. Then they select startups with the greatest growth potential and they bring them to you from personalized medicine to cybersecurity, robotics and quantum computing and more in state of the art labs, startup garages and anywhere in between our crowd identifies innovators so you can invest when growth potential is greatest. And that's early. Our crowd accredited investors have already invested over $1 billion in growing tech companies, and many of their members have benefited from their 46 IPOs or exits. And this is an amazing way for you as an angel investor to start your career. You get to read the deal memos at our crowd and pick and choose which ones appeal to you. And you get to put a small amount of money in while you're learning. And they get access to deals that, let's face it, you may not have access to if you're just starting your angel investing career. So now you can truly diversify your portfolio by investing early in innovative private market companies at our crowd. Join the fastest growing venture capital investment community. Head to ourcrowd.com slash angel. That's O-U-R-C-R-O-W-D dot com slash angel. 
our favorite CEO, our other favorite CEO, not including mm. Jason and Frank Slootman and, <laughs> anyway. and Glenn from Redfin. And Glenn from this Redfin, week. he's so great. Um, we had yeah, we had no all in this week, so I was like, sorry, there's no all in this week, but here's a list of five incredible interviews we've done that you can watch on this week at startups, yeah, folks. No catch big up. deal. Try to uh, catch anyway, up. Our our CEO that we are still hoping will come on the show, Barry McCarthy, yeah, on, new CEO at Peloton, reported uh, the Wall Street Journal reported that Peloton CEO Barry McCarthy said it isn't clear yet mm. the role that Peloton machines will play in the company's future. This is a big, potentially Whoa. big shift here. He said, roughly 80% of capital spending goes toward equipment right now with the rest spent on software. And he mm -hmm. thinks that number should be reversed. Peloton mm -hmm. is experimenting with subscription models. And as you know, he had hinted at this idea that Peloton would test new monthly subscription services where customers pay a single bike and connected fitness subscription, 60 to 100 bucks a month, with the option to cancel any time Right now, of course, the company offers a bike purchase at seventeen hundred forty-five dollars, or fourteen, you know, fifteen hundred plus two forty-nine, and then the bike plus is twenty-five hundred dollars with free delivery, and then the subscription is separate at like forty bucks a month. So I guess he's so he's basically saying, how can we combine the hardware and the software, but maybe even in the future phase out hardware? I don't think so. I think the hardware is Apple level key, right? in this. Yeah. So I think this is an and not an or. I think what he's saying is, you know, in terms of dollars deployed, we need to greatly uh, increase our investment in software. As a Peloton right. user, I will say the product is perfect, mm -hmm. but you don't see updates. I, right. If I looked at my my treadmill from three years ago, I can't tell you anything in the software that's updated. Yeah. I literally can't. Off the, I'm I'm really thinking off the top of my head. Oh no, I do know. After they had this series of tragic accidents, which I don't believe are their fault, they're just the nature of treadmills, they put a pin code on it. Mm -hmm. Literally nothing has changed in the interface or software. It's perfect. They left it. But it would be like if you got your iPhone and you had it for three years and they never updated the OS updated. or you had a yeah. Tesla and three years later, nothing had changed. They should be adding Spotify, Sirius XM, Netflix, Disney every month. New features should come on your Peloton, period, full stop. And yeah. I should be able to pick my playlist to go with a class. I should be able to watch window in a window. I should be able to have CNBC in the corner while taking a Peloton class, pull a podcast while I'm listening. Why is there not a podcast player? If I'm on my treadmill, I listen to podcasts. So I got to bring my, or I watch Netflix or Disney. Like I got to bring my iPad and I have a plastic thing that they sell on Amazon for 15 bucks to cradle your yep. goddamn ipad on your peloton like, it's so dumb i'm just making like amen hands because yes to all of that and the idea of flipping this on its head and not making everything and frankly this will undo the iphoneification of the concept of hardware right which yeah. is that it has planned obsolescence and you i bought on the other hand as you know like the half price peloton i bought the mix bike yep great bike yes good subscription and then they introduced a new bike and it has all these new software features. So I'm like watching workouts now, paying my 40 bucks a month, and I'm on my old bike. So the stuff they're talking about, like the RPMs or this wah, and that wah. tracking or whatever, doesn't exist so because dumb. they didn't update my old bike. So like mm. once you get off of the treadmill, no pun intended, of selling people new hardware mm -hmm. because the new software only supports new hardware, then you can actually delight customers instead of pissing them off by essentially bricking 
their old hardware that they paid a lot for. And then now what are they supposed to do with it? So like, I, I see this as no, nothing but more proof of Barry's continued genius. Also, literally the second I could buy a Peloton on a subscription model and have all the content oh. included, done, done and done. Yeah, I mean, they, they have access to capital. They should press that advantage and they should let people buy these things for $99 a month. And after 24 months, your subscription, if you pay it off, after 24 months, you drop down to 30 bucks a month. Yeah. There are so many, the, the number of people who would be onboarded and listen, the stock has crashed already. So let's go for scale. Let's set a goal of 10 million subscribers mm -hmm. by any means necessary. And if the bike costs them 1200, if the, the hardware costs them 1000 to make and they sell it for 2000, for the love of God, just like make it $99 a month. You, not yeah. Anybody can afford $99 a month. That is literally for an Uber driver or DoorDash driver, I think like eight runs or something. If you make 10 bucks on average, 15 bucks on average, it would be, you could do it in a day. So you we'll know. be careful with that. Anybody can afford, but it's a choice that you would be willing to make. I'd say for a lot of 75% of Americans can afford versus $2,500 out front and outlay Which is in a country where of like Americans. most Americans can't come up with $400 in an emergency. So yes, yes. like it's a much more. I mean, uh, if the average rent in America is $1,000 or average mortgage payment is a thousand bucks, there's obviously a widespread here. You're asking people to come out of pocket for two right. months rent? No. Yeah. Or three months rent? Heck no. $99 a month is a tenth of your rent. It's easy. And it's then, easy. And then benefit from ongoing software updates and feel valued as a consumer, not like yes. a sucker who invests in hardware that's now. Yeah. I will say there, there hasn't been, they haven't obsoleted the Peloton hardware. Right. And because it's Android, I do think they could very easily send somebody to your home for 500 bucks every five years to upgrade. Yeah. Hey, Molly, tell us about your amazing interview today for Angel Season 6. Yeah, speaking of hardware, mm. our interview today is Jay Malik from Countdown Capital, who is not afraid of hardware. Countdown Capital's thesis is to invest strictly in hardware products mm. and American manufacturing and defense. Let it me tell you something. Hardware is hard. <laughs> cannot wait. Has he figured it out? I mean, I guess we'll find out. It's All super right. interesting. He is a first-time fund manager. I talked to him for an interview on Angel Season 6. It's, it's a good one. Check it out. Absolutely. And if you want to, you can search for Angel Podcast, maybe Angel Jason Calacanis, and you'll find it in your player. We have a separate subscription just for all six seasons. If you want to just have a nice, easy play through all six of them, and you'll get 60 interviews with amazing investors, masterclasses across the board. Let's get to the Molly's amazing interview. Jay Malik of Countdown Capital. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Molly. How's your day going? So great. Such a great day. It's like almost Friday. It's all coming together. How are you? Love it. Yeah, same here. I am perpetually excited uh, that I get to do this job. So I'm, I'm just, I'm happy. Very, it, very happy. Right? It is a super cool. Let's like just take a step back and say, this is a super cool job. It is. I mean, specifically with what I'm doing, investing in hard tech companies, you know, probably the most futuristic stuff. Um, it just gets me so hyped about the future. Honestly, yep, totally. Well, we're we're jumping all the way ahead to the middle. But so you are here as part of our angel season six, episode eight, where we're focusing on first time funds, how first time is countdown capital? 
Well, we've been around now for around 18 months. Um, we have raised one fund to date. And so I guess we are very much Pretty a first, first time, time fund. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But we have, we've made now what nine portfolio investments. Um, so been around the block a little bit over the last uh, year and we've learned a lot. So, um, it's been, a, it's been a fun journey so far, but we got another 10 years. So I'm, I'm buckling up. Give us the, um, if you would, the, the basics of the fund. It looks like you raised $3 million with a 506C. That's correct. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it was a $3 million fund one. Um, we did a 506C designation, which allows us to raise in public, um, mm -hmm. and to advertise about ourselves, which was unique. I think at the time when we had done it, the only other fund manager that had done it was Mac. And so Mac wow. and I had, had spent a lot of time together figuring out the best ways to do this, which is fun. You know, that that's that's the story to date. Um, Mac, yeah. I think, actually was our very first guest on this season of Angel. Wow. Yeah, so, and we've sort of been, it, it seems to be, not only is there the theme of first-time fund managers, but this theme running through of the different ways that people are now approaching raising funds and how many options there actually are. So, tell us about the process. I know Mac, I think, you know, his deal was just calling... Uh, so a thousand people a day or something yeah. along those lines like <laughs> yeah. how did you how do you hustle up a fund in public yeah i mean honestly it was a similar process um, yeah. lots of tweeting i think i you know at the peak of when we were raising i was pro probably tweeting every day if not more than every day which is a lot for me we got flooded with both interest from founders to want us to invest in them as well as lps like, for example, we, you know, I, I had a couple of family offices message me on Twitter and they were all in stealth mode. I would have never known that they were following me. Mm. Um, but it was interesting to see uh, people come reach out to us and then also us getting to have them sign up to a list and then set up meeting after meeting after meeting. So in total, our process took roughly three or four months. Um, we probably did five or six meetings on average day, which is a lot. Um and we try to cut to the nose as quickly as possible and focus on the yeses. So that that is, was our process. So what? I mean, you just raised three million dollars on Twitter. Like, what's your background? How do you think? What was it about these tweets that were landing so well? Yeah. So I mean, it was definitely not just the tweets. Um, yeah. My background is specifically having helped build a couple of startups now in the intersection of machine learning. Um, and, and national security. So the interest set that I have in hard tech and specifically mm -hmm. how it relates to um, the strength of the United States is very tangential to my uh, experience set, right? So that definitely helped. Um, but I think, you know, in general, people have been feeling a lot of energy around hard tech and wanting to build really ambitious products to help solve things for our climate, for our country, um, as we're now seeing, obviously, what's happening in Russia and Ukraine. Um, and I think COVID really ignited the flame. And so we were riding a lot of that energy. And, you know, to, to this day, I think we are one of the only funds that, that has been raising in deep tech publicly. And that, that energy that people had, I think, came to us as we were raising. So that was, yeah. uh, we, we were lucky, definitely, to be raising the time that we did. That's definitely part of the reason why we've been able to raise this fund. Um, I definitely want to dig in more on the thesis, but a little bit more about you and and your background in hard tech. Let's see. I think I saw that you had two you or you said you had two startups in this yeah, field. Yeah, so 
I was the first two hire. national security machine learning startups. Tell me about those. Can you That's tell right. us about those or will you have to kill us? No, no, <laughs> they're totally fine. I just wanted um, to make that joke one time and I will not do that again. <laughs> so the first startup um, is a company called Accrete and they were essentially using, they are, they're, they're still alive today, um, using machine learning to essentially process unstructured data um, and working with different government agencies like the DOD on spe special projects for that, right? Mm -hmm. um, Second startup uh, got acquired, a startup called Forge AI, and they were using graph machine learning, um, similarly to analyze unstructured data, but specifically working with the intelligence community and the CIA. So we right. got invested from Inqtel uh, and a couple of other great Boston-based firms. So yeah, you know, I, I really learned uh, w how good products are built and how bad products are built from our mistakes. Um, and that has definitely informed the way I look at um, investing today in hard tech. And so then at 26, yeah. you're like, <laughs> I'm ready. Um, but what made you decide that venture capital was the way to go? Like, it seems like you could have gone to another startup potentially or built, but you were you like, I want to build a lot more things and not just one at a time? Yeah, that's right. I think my I realized early on in my career that my superpower was supporting people uh, who were building things. So for example, as a product manager helping the CEO work on certain projects. And that really um, helped me clarify that, that I thought that VC was the right role for me, because so much of this role is just helping founders, supporting them, and being their you know, right-hand person for whatever they need, especially at the early stage where we are. So mm -hmm. I think having realized that, I thought, okay, VC is a way to scalably support many people who are building the future. And I'm kind of sick and tired of putting my eggs in one basket. I want to support as many people as possible. You're describing enthusiasm for hard tech um, as a pretty new climate tech investor, but somebody who's covered this industry for quite a long time, I can say there's also a lot of fear and hesitation about hard tech. So do you think that you struck a nerve with a you know particularly adventurous set of LPs? Who said, yes. like, let's be risky, you know? Definitely. Yeah. yeah. So my, my LPs are very, very mission aligned. Um, they're not your garden sort of regular family offices or even just individuals looking to park their own money. Um, they're all a mission-driven set of people, people who have invested or built deep tech companies before. Um, and that was strategic also to help us obviously uh, grow our presence. But Certainly, um, we're very opinionated and our LPs are also very opinionated as a result. Is that a, a good thing? <laughs> I think so. Yeah. Um, it, because opinionated people, uh, including myself, I think, um, we, we tend to hold strong opinions loosely. And when we do learn and when we do get ourselves burned, uh, we're pretty flexible and, and understand that we, we did mess up and we learn from it and we try to win again. So. Right. Um, I think it's it's good for us. When you say, though, that your LPs are opinionated, do you mean that they are pretty active, maybe even in comparison to other funds? Yes. And we try to stimulate that activity. So we have a Slack channel. We try to promote a lot of conversation about different topics and issues, not necessarily about our portfolio companies, but really more about, you know, broader industry themes. Um, and we learn a lot from our LPs. You know, uh, one of my LPs is building a company right now. Um, not even sure I can you can talk about the details, but it's definitely, uh, it's longevity focused and it's like a 30 or 40 year timeline. And I've learned so much just from hearing about his experience building a deep tech company. So 
um, yeah, we just we're constantly learning from from all of our LPs. Let's talk a, a little bit more about the 506C designation and what that did for you. Because again, there is a lot of, you know, there can be reluctance around deep tech and hard tech because of those long timelines or because of the pipeline from research to commercialization. It sounds like there was something special about being able to make this pitch in public that got you over the finish line quickly. How long did it take you to raise this fund? Yeah, so it took roughly four, four to five months. And what? I think the, yeah, the beauty this of five bananas, by the way, people are going to be listening to this going, what am I doing? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think the beauty of it was that we were truly one of the first ones like Mac. And so we just got a lot of eyeballs, right? Yeah. And as a result, just the, the pure scale of the impressions we got and what we were doing, it was, it was natural that at least one or 2% of those people had the capital and were interested in what we were doing. And so, you know, I think what's unique about the 506C is that it just shortens the timeline to getting eyeballs on what you're doing. And we were able to jumpstart the process as a result and raise quickly. So. Were you full-time during those months? I was part-time. I was part-time raising, but also part-time finishing up my gig at a different fund um, that I was on the investment team of. And so I got to spend all of the time that I wanted to doing fundraising and, and helping you know, moving that through the pipeline. And at the same time, finishing up my gig where I was getting paid a little bit um, to help that fund. So I did manage to keep my my pocketbook afloat, which was really important for me. I'm young, I don't have a lot of wealth. Um, but I wanted to make sure that I gave this the best shot I could. So I was, yeah. I was happy to get that balance. And then the digital tools, it seems like were also pretty useful for you because you're not in the valley or in a tech That's hub, right. right? You're in Missouri. That's right. Yeah, Twitter definitely compressed my network incredibly so. I have met so many incredible people through Twitter. My entire network is pretty much through Twitter at this point, um, which is incredible wow. to say. Um, and you just joined, can I go back and say, you just joined Twitter in 2019. I did, yes. That is, you, you should probably take some time and write a manual about how to use <laughs> Twitter unbelievably efficiently. I wish there was some science towards it. A lot of it is just shower thoughts, to be honest. So you join Twitter in 2019, you're raising from Missouri, you are known in certain community, in a certain community right around machine learning and national security, um, raise this fund. Now is Twitter the primary way, like you just said, that you're keeping deal flow going? Yeah, it's, it's definitely, I would say it's not just Twitter, it's generally using social media and, and spontaneity at the same time. So for example, our investment in Hadrian came through me DMing Chris on Twitter and looking at his bio and saying, Hey, that's a really cool thing that you're building with chat. Mm -hmm. And next thing you know, they raised a, a seed round from founders fund Lux capital, like three months later, right? Wow. So that was fun. And then I also did investment into a company that didn't even exist until I had found the guy on LinkedIn out of nowhere, because he had an interesting background. So I just messaged them him saying, Hey, cool background, you're doing climate as well as deep tech. It's very rare to find that let's chat. And five days later, we were leading the pre-seed round. So it was it was insane. Um, just getting to see how social media helps our deal flow and how we use it. Yeah. Wow. Um, tell us a little more about Hadrian. And, and, you know, I think that'll help some pe people who may not be familiar with what you even mean when you say you're investing in hard tech and deep tech. Yeah, so Hadrian's basically building factories of the future. Um, they're using software to power hardware to deliver aerospace parts to start with other industry parts as well in the future, but aerospace parts to start with to customers as quickly as possible, beating out 
you know, legacy mom and pop shops across the country. So they're vertically integrating, they're using software, they're leveraging hardware, but they're not building any unique hardware themselves, which is super cool. And, you know, they're working with some of the biggest space companies in the world, um, you know, Astra, ABL Space, all of the ones that you're probably seeing on the news, they're, they're working with. So um, it's, it's a lot of fun. I was a very small check and Chris is definitely a lot bigger and building something way bigger than I, I think even I could have imagined when I first invested. Um, but, you know, kudos to him. And I'm just really, really grateful uh, to be a very small part of this. So let's use that as a jumping off point for the thesis. You, your thesis, you write, is time, it's time to rebuild the American industrial base, one rocket ship, literally <laughs> at a time. <laughs> talk, yeah. to me, talk to me more about the thesis and how you deploy in that direction. Yeah, that's right. So I think there are three main components to our thesis. Um, the first is stage, pre-seed. Yeah. The second is the focus on technology, which is hard tech. And the third is our opinion, and that is founders rebuilding the industrial base of America, right? The first two, pre-seed and hard tech, really came out of my experience. Um, I found that there's always room to be a first believer in technically difficult capital-intensive companies. Um, it's risky, obviously. There's a lot of capital that that needs to go to work to make these companies successful. But where there's risk, there's usually high reward and low competition. And mm -hmm. so, uh, similar to how Peter Thiel looks at building a startup, I looked at it from building a funds perspective. And I said, hey, this is a really interesting opportunity. Um, I think if we focus on this, we can actually generate a lot of alpha, right? So, that was really the first building block of our thesis. The second, as, as I touched on earlier, this opinion around founders rebuilding the uh, industrial base, mm -hmm. I found that honestly, um, back since like 2015, 2016 with Brexit, um, there was going to be a backlash to globalization. And there was a lot of money that could be made by bringing manufacturing, supply chains, energy back home, but not necessarily relying on traditional frameworks of labor, but using technology to automate a lot of that, right? Mm -hmm. And so... Uh, what I believe very strongly was we can remain cost competitive with countries like China and Russia if we use technology to drive our manufacturing base and other industrial base activities. Um, and so that's how we came to that part of the thesis, really. Um, and like you said, doubling down on America, as you sort of implement this thesis, are you thinking about it in specific buckets? Are there directions that you want to go? Are there filters that you're applying as you sort of decide? Or are you op opportunistic, you know, within I, the I, thesis? I would say that there are definitely um, themes that we like. And one theme we really do like is vertical integration. So owning everything from the manufacturing point of view and supply supply chain point of view, all the way to selling to the end customer. That's very compelling to us as you can drive margins, high margin activity over time. Um, second, I think defense tech in particular is one sector that people really didn't think was going to be impactful, but I think we're seeing will be very, very formative this decade. And so mm -hmm. we've been focusing on it, honestly, since day one, but even now more so we're thinking about ways we can support, um, defense innovation, um, as a theme. And then finally, I will say, um, anything with anything relating to manufacturing, uh, let's call it components or materials that are very important for US national security, like timber, for example, or semiconductor chips, uh, we're always looking to find ways that we can invest uh, in those sectors. So mm -hmm. those are the themes that uh, generally speaking, we do like. 
Talk to me about check size because you're describing expensive operations yeah. potentially and you're yes. a three million dollar fund. Do you have a big network of co-investors or are you really trying to say let's get these off the ground and then find them a landing place? Yeah, I would say three things. One big ne network of co-investors. We mm -hmm. usually co-invest with other angels uh, who are value add with us um, or larger firms. So that's number one. Uh, number two, um, being a first believer itself, again, is really important. So we find that just by saying that, hey, we will invest, that usually adds fuel to the fire for the rest of their fundraising around and we can help them do that. So again, just having the audacity to say yes to hard things is part of what differentiates us. Mm -hmm. um, and then finally, honestly, with deep tech and hard tech companies, the biggest thing is finding talented people and getting to join your team early on. Even with a small check size of like 100K, you can use that to hire people. And so honestly, uh, the biggest reason why people take our check at the very early stage is just to have that initial form of capital to start hiring that engineer they really want to bring on board who's from SpaceX, for example, and can add a lot to the team. So yep. that's, yep. that's the reason. Um, and then how do you think about time scale? The other, you know, the other big panic point about hard tech is how long some of mm -hmm. these projects can take. Are you concerned about that? I mean, I always feel like my counter argument to that, certainly on the climate side is, I'm pretty sure we want them to go quickly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, kind of an urgent situation on all these fronts. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would say, so a couple of things. First, obviously, we want people to move as quickly as possible. And we invest in founders who move with a sense of urgency. So that's a given. But that being said, it is a reality that a lot of these technologies are not very mature right now. And so we have actually instituted a longer fund life um, than the average fund, venture capital fund today. Mm -hmm. um, we have a 12-year fund life with an extension period of another two years. So that brings up to 14, which is pretty sizable. Yeah. Um, and we also have a slower deployment period. So I know a lot of people are thinking a lot about deploying in six months to a year. It's the new fashionable thing in venture capital. We are doing the opposite view. Uh, with hard tech, we want to space ourselves out. And so we're looking at deployment periods of at least three to four years. Mm. Um, so that's how we at least mitigate some of the risk on the front end with us, because we truly believe there are only a handful of great deep tech companies a year. Um, but at the same time, we're trying to give room for our fund to mature on the back end and going up to 14 years, for example, will help us. Right. That is so interesting. And I wonder how it changes your reporting relationship with your LPs, you know, I mean, IRR as a metric is yeah. sort of fundamentally distorting, right? If you're talking about how yes. much you, money you return and how quickly, yes. I would imagine you said to your LPs up front, we're going to have a different conversation. Yeah, I think everybody who's bought into the fund is more interested in multiples um, than IRR. Again, they're all deep tech tangential anyway, so they get that this is going to take a long time. Um, that being said, there's no excuse for not having good returns, right? And sure. We are like, we are definitely a financial driven firm. We are here to make money for our LPs. And if we have to sacrifice in the IRR by a couple of percentage points, we're going to aim to 5x the multiple. So that's the way we look at it. Got it. One or the other, basically. Yeah. Or ideally both. Yes. Um, this is the part where I would love for you to get us excited about the future. We were sort of chatting a little bit before we started recording about what a cool job this is and what cool yeah. things we see. But I now <laughs> sort of feel like you're seeing the really cool stuff. We see a lot of really interesting things. Um, we see anything relating from nuclear fusion technology, uh, obviously for climate, uh, you know, purposes, 
all the way up to like hypersonic weapons factories and hypersonic jet factories. Um, so we're seeing things that are literally 20 years out and it's, it sometimes is a little, a little overwhelming to be sure. Um, because so many great people have great ideas and we want to fund all of them. We can't, we don't have all that capital. Um, but at the same time, honestly, just having a call with somebody that's thinking on a 20 year time scale that feels so passionately about building something that nobody else will believe in besides themselves is so, so invigorating. Mm -hmm. And truly it is more than even software companies. You really have to believe in yourself if you're building something that's that ambitious. And so, Very true. yeah, that, that itself, the, the confidence, the spirit of the audacity to want to do something like that is, is infectious. And it really helps us as a firm stay on top of what's happening and to take big bets as well. Who is on your team? to help you vet these ideas, you know, I would imagine yeah. sometimes I've, I've already had this experience. Sometimes things come along and you're like, if that's real, it's amazing. <laughs> Who do I even ask yes. whether it's real or not? <laughs> yes. So, um, well, I do have now actually for the first time in, in since I started this fund, I do have a chief of staff. So she's helping me a lot, um, work through some of the opportunities, but our LP base, as I mentioned, is very, very strategic. Um, we have PhDs in, everything relating to aerospace all the way down to optics engineering. Mm -hmm. And so we rely a lot on their expertise um, and have one on one calls wherever we can with them. We also have advisors. Um, we have a couple of advisors who are more business focused, but we have one specific advisor um, who is, you know, for example, a PhD in mechanical engineering um, that can help us work through uh, any diligence questions we have. That being said, I will say that the technical risk at the stage that we are operating in is very, very overstated. A lot mm -hmm. of times for pre-seed companies in hard tech, it's a lot more important to understand that there's a market and there are customers that will pay for your ambitious technology as opposed to just building out technology that is, you know, questionably feasible. That's right. really the more important thing. Validating that people will pay for, for example, your hypersonic weapons factory, not just whether you can build it. Right. Interesting. Do you also work alongside non-dilutive capital? I'm hearing a lot about companies who are raising some venture, but also doing what are some, you know, sort of new and pretty interesting grant programs and fellowship programs in some of these areas. Yeah, I would say not really, actually, at the yeah. early stages. Um, certainly, as companies uh, scale in hard tech, they will need to raise debt financing and other ways of asset acquisition that are not just venture capital equity. Um, but at the stage that we're at, these companies are super early and they're just trying to hire people. And what we find is that non-dilutive funding has all these milestones and things that you need to get done, especially in hard tech, whereas venture capital, where we're investing in, we're just investing in great ideas and great yeah. people. So, And then how do you go about sourcing those or proving out those commercial opportunities on the back end? Like, are you thinking, look, the government's a giant buyer. Yeah. Let's build that funnel. Well, yeah. So we have a lot of connections, um, yeah. both on the commercial and the defense side. We definitely run by the market opportunity with people in our network who are placed in those positions. Um, the other really key tell is simply asking founders how much customer discovery they've done and to give us evidence that they've talked to 20 people, for example. And you would be surprised that most people have not done that. So mm. that to us is a signal that they're looking at it as a science project. And we're not investing in science projects, we're investing in businesses. And if you haven't thought about the customer, you haven't thought about yourself as a business. So 
that's the way we look at it. That is outstanding advice, by the way, for everyone here who is listening. Um, and then finally, before I let you go, I want to ask you about how you're moving to Miami. Yeah. Yeah. I'm <laughs> you, so excited. You have this special thing being the guy in Missouri. <laughs> but, but I also, know. I why know. Miami over, you know, any other tech hub? Yeah. So I think a couple of different things. Uh, first, it's great weather and I'm sick and tired of the Midwest. Um, <laughs> second, uh, yes. Second, um, lots of free thinkers, independent thinkers um, that are out there. I like how they kind of embrace creativity and, and contrarian thought. And that speaks to me on a cultural level. Um, and then finally, there's a growing number of hard tech builders in Miami. Um, hard tech Miami, for example, is an organization that just got started that's working on providing some space and mentorship to people who are building companies in hard tech in Miami. And I want to be a big part of that when I move down. And yeah. so it's, it's a combination of, of culture, weather, community. Um, to me, that's a killer combination. Not the worst when you describe it that way. Not the worst. <laughs> um, I'm going to grab a question real quick from one of our new noties. And by the way, uh, our, our producer, Rachel, would like us to know via the Slack that she loves Hard Tech Miami. Oh, amazing. Um, so from Noti Bob G, what makes your fund different from competitors? You answered this a little bit because it sounds like there aren't many, but I wonder, are more coming into this space and how will you differentiate? Yeah, so I think, you know, still uh, in terms of differentiation right now, it's being able to focus on pre-seed, being the first believer in a company that's, again, really, really hard to do in deep tech where it's very capital intensive. You're relying basically just on a plan. There's literally, literally nothing built, right? And so I think that's, that continues to be a way we differentiate ourselves by taking risk where other people won't. Um, the other is on probably the, uh, let's call it helping founder side of things. So we have started to build out a hiring funnel um, of deep tech engineers, folks that are anywhere from aerospace and mechanical all the way down to nuclear, for example. Mm -hmm. And these are all people who have been pre-vetted or curated by us who are looking for a job at a startup. And so when we invest, we have three or four engineers right off the bat who they can talk to to hire. And so that is a big part recently that's been helping us with founders who are looking for just more than just a thought partner they want some actual help and you know we're able to provide that with the hiring side which is really the most important thing when you're getting started in, in yeah. hard tech i mean what it sounds like is in addition to hard tech like you're a sector specialist yes yeah correct were that's you right. maybe like a spy before no. i mean i'm just wondering <laughs> it just feels like you know a lot of people like <laughs> not I many 26 year olds can come out of nowhere <laughs> like that i just <laughs> I, I guess i work very hard and that's all um just put in the hours. You know how it is. Yeah. Yep. I do. And you can tell. And you're crushing it. Jay Malik, uh, founder and GP of Countdown Capital, which you can find on Twitter at Countdown VC. Where else can people find you? Uh, LinkedIn, email J at Countdown.Capital. I'm very, very responsive. So hit me up anytime. Jay, this is fantastic. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you, Molly. Appreciate it. It is Friday. Every Friday, we end with an amazing segment called OK Boomer. This is where Rachel reporting meets a millennial, a Gen Z person, and she expands the consciousness of old people uh, so we can deepen our understanding of these new generations. Rachel, who do you got for Molly and I and the audience this week? So this week, I got to talk to Josh from Party Round. He was definitely the most entertaining person we've had, I think, on the podcast so far. So really excited for you guys to check him out. 
what is, so is party round like it sounds, I assume yep. fundraising. Yeah. So party round is a fundraising. Did you kill him after you talked to him? Is he a uh, competition? <laughs> no, no, no. He's, he's cool. Don't worry. So party round is a fundraising tool for founders. And basically they just gamified the party round fundraising process. Hence the name. Uh, founders can create a round, set terms, and invite investors to participate. And then Party Round handles the required documents, signatures, all the other stuff like that to make the process go smoothly. So it's sort of like a sure fund management, which we're investors in and that powered AngelList and us. Mm -hmm. Or I guess but more of a competitor to AngelList because there's no syndicate lead, there's no fund. Exactly. You go find your investors. Does it mm -hmm. do an LLC and wrap them all into one item on the cap table? Or does it just manage the process and let them be direct investors on the cap table? I believe it just manages the process, but that is something I'd have to go look into further because I don't know too much. I know their big thing is being founder focused rather than investor focused because okay. a lot of the platforms out there uh, tend to be geared toward investors rather than the founders. And Josh's role there is doing things like marketing, community growth, things like that. So Great. most of what we talked about was in that space. I think founders and anybody working in that area um, can take a lot from him. He's very good at what he does. He's 19, uh, didn't go to college, went straight from oh, wow. high school in Canada to uh, working in, at a startup in SF and is just killing it. He's there 19. Is a, 19 yeah. is pretty amazing. Yeah, he's 19. So that makes him a Gen Z. Um, yeah. And so, you know, there is a handshake protocol that Y Combinator created. So you go to demo day. Um, if somebody wants to meet you, they send this very short email. They kind of copied the format that AngelList did in the early days, which is you say you want to invest, it automatically forwards you an email from the person, the document, oh, cool. you put in how much you want to invest, and you're making a handshake, hey, pending diligence, I want to invest 25k. So what they're doing is like starting you Molly on like second base, like, okay, you saw the presentation, you want to make a bet, what's the bet size, go review the paperwork, we're going to you know, the, the three or four things you're going to ask for will just set up right now. And mm -hmm. so it's a little bit forward as an investor when you do it. Um, like I did it a couple times, but I wanted to just meet the founders. And it was like, kind of assuming that either you want to invest or you don't. And there's my maybe like, I want to meet you. <laughs> so right. it kind of skips that step. It's kind of like going right to consummating the deal. Um, and, you know, I think tools like this that um, at least help people walk through the process forget about gamification and that's fun and clever but just creating structure for the process for people who don't create their own structure this could be done with a google sheet like putting your targets in sending specific emails having templates but to put it all in one place sure seems like a reasonable idea yeah um, i'm hoping some one of our founders uses it and gives us some feedback on it i haven't heard of yeah. any founder using it yet but i think it's new they uh an interesting part this isn't about party around but about josh's platform is they do a bunch of drops think like mischief things like that so um they did an nft drop and you were a part of it there was a jason nft really yeah uh -oh. we talk about it in the podcast oh i think i told him like what the f are you doing with my yeah, likeness I promoting yourself did. take Is this jason down cool with yeah that, you probably or? did no i was not cool with it no, i was like hey dude like be. you're using me to market a startup product they get paid for that like don't do that and i think he took it down or then they said they would use it for charity and i was like yeah ixnay on that i you know like please don't do this kind of stuff um, I mean, I'm flattered, but if you're, if an artist painted a picture of me and made an NFT, like, I'm not going to stop that. But if you do it to grow your business, that's using me in an advertisement. That would be like me taking, I don't know, I don't know, Shark Tank and taking the Shark Tank people and being like, join the syndicate. 
And they'll be like, wait a second, I'm getting paid to do that for, you know, another syndication platform. Like that's, there's a concept of using uh, celebrities likenesses in the real world. And so I thought that was kind of lame. That is um, so interesting that we have totally talked more than once about that exact generational difference. Like yeah. this question, this, I, this total concept that there just is not ownership. There is not, you know, the IP. law doesn't exist. The law doesn't exist. Right. Exactly. Yeah, you don't have and, to and run anything by an attorney. F that. It's super. Yeah. It's, it is, I mean, it's actually kind of appropriate that we're having this okay boomer conversation because yes. literally boomers are like, I'm sorry, stuff can be owned. And it sort of now feels yeah. like with, with the youngs, it's like, no, it can't. Yeah. I literally yeah. had somebody uh, use me in their marketing video on like one of these, like, you know, there's, there's like really cool crowdfunding platforms for public seed invest, our crowd, masterworks, you know, like these are like really on the up and up, but like, there's like this whole underbelly of these ones. And one of these underbelly ones, the founder put me in there in their marketing video because he had asked a question on Ask Jason. I won't say which company. And then they made me the focal point of the video. And then all these people invested. And then people in the threaded comments were like, oh, Jason Calacanis is investing. He's the Uber guy. And I like was like, hey, guys, take me out of your video. And they're like, well, we were on your show. And I'm like, the, the key word in that sentence is my show. <laughs> <laughs> like you were on my show and this is you're using my content for things. I said, well, you didn't get permission from us. I was like, I implicitly got permission from you when you asked me a question at a public forum. Like you opted into that. I did not opt into this. And I had to like explain to this idiot multiple times. And then he got really offended and he was like, you are anti-startup. I'm like, okay, don't pull the anti-startup card. You're using me to market this and you're confusing angel investors who are influenced by this and I talked to the platform and the platform was like, yo, we don't want to be in a battle with Jason Galicanis. Like we <laughs> so like, can we be on your show? And I was like, listen, I just don't want people to be confused. How many people have done this equity crowdfunding? Like there's like 200 investors. So I was like, will you just make sure because you have now misled them that's securities fraud. You sold them a security thinking that I am the investor. And that I'm the proponent of this because at some point I said, Oh, what a great idea. And like, they're like using Oh, what a great idea in the video, <laughs> like, I'm endorsing right. the fundraising, like they, you know, did the like crazy edit. Long story short, they emailed everybody. Just to be clear, Jason isn't in it. And they finally removed me from it. And then the guy emails me a year later after I have this battle with him over it. And it's like, Hey, are you sure we can't use you in our video? I'm like, Yes, I'm sure. So you know, and some people might say, Hey, what about writing a review of your book or doing that? You can review anything you want. It's when you use somebody's likeness to mislead the public that that person is associated with your product and then to sell a product. So when you do commerce, which is what they were doing. So if somebody did an NFT project, my favorite entrepreneurs, and I made a painting, and they're an artist, that's different. Anyway, there you have it. Well, I can't wait to listen to that section. Anyway, RIP Josh. <laughs> RIP Josh. Oh, sorry, Josh. No. Yeah. He Josh, sorry, Josh. In many other ways, but well, I mean, most, he probably did that when he was 17 years old. He had no idea about you know, you know, using cultural a, differences on display. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, this was definitely one of my favorite episodes. So I'm excited right. for everybody to check. All it right, out everybody. Here we go. A little controversy. We found a fight. Yeah. Let's go. <laughs> All right. Let's hear Rachel reporting. Okay, Boomer. Okay, Boomer. I understood the assignment. Hello, everybody. And welcome to another segment of Okay, Boomer. Today, I have with me Josh from Party Round. I would say his last name. However, everybody knows him as Josh from Party Round. Josh. Also Anon, thanks so, so much. <laughs> and Anon, yeah. Do you want to drop your last name in here or no? No, no, no. I'm good. I'm good. I, 
I uh, I think I'll keep that one keep that one in the bag for now. Awesome. So Josh from Party Round, can you explain what a party round is and what party round the company is? Yeah, yeah. So party rounds are when founders are raising fundraising for their startup and they have a round with a ton of investors. And it's also we named our company. So Party Round is a fintech startup that we started about nine months ago, founded by Jordy and Sarah Chase Hayes, um, our lovely founders. Um, and it's basically a tool for founders to fundraise on. So it takes all the pains of fundraising, like your legal docs, spreadsheets, the, the tracking down investors, just, just it, it, invest, raising rounds of founders is a very painful process. And so we, we took all that, we automated it, and we turned it into a beautiful app that feels like cash app to raise on. Um, it's not a crowdfunding platform. It's just a tool, but it lets you handle your fundraise effortlessly. Um, you can, we automate your legal docs, we track your, your funds, we transfer your funds. And so you just have to, you know, start around on our app and then handle it as an OS from there. So that's awesome. So do you have to be an accredited investor to use the app? So accreditation is we're, we're not really focused on investors. It's really a founder focused tool. We, we're trying to build the best experience for founders to fundraise on. And in that process, we make a really good tool for investors. But when we're talking about like using the app, you use the app if you're a founder. We're building for founders. Um, but that being said, uh, all that, the type of investors that a founder wants to let in is up to the founder's responsibility. So that is totally their jurisdiction. Um, but yeah, our users are founders. Um, but we, we do think it makes a great investing experience better than I think a lot of the tools that people use nowadays to invest money in. So I definitely agree on having it be a beautiful app. I was inv- invited to my first party round on the app. Oh, were you? Yeah, which, I didn't end up. Um, you should end up investing. Brutal. I did not end up investing in it. I mean, like maybe, maybe, who knows? But no, maybe I didn't end up investing in it um, yet. Um, maybe are that'll you, be a future are you Rachel thing. To say but... which, which round it is, or do you want to keep that private? I'll, I'll, I'll let you know off air. Okay, you know, gotcha. you know the person who it is really, <laughs> really, really well. The girl yeah, whose company it is. But um, I was invited to the app, so I got to see the app firsthand. And what made me yeah. really scared about it actually was how easy it is for your friends and family now to basically. Uh, give away $1,000 because you're right. It was incredibly seamless, like the entire apps process, which I think is really cool. Um, a lot less steps, I'm sure, than the normal investing process. Well, this is actually, uh, this is actually sort of the, what the crux of what we're trying to get at. Because nowadays in like modern society, you can, you can buy like stocks. Stocks have been gamified, like crypto, which is, I'm like, I'm pro crypto, but it's incredibly gamified. You can like blow like thousands of dollars on NFTs with the click of a button. You can do sports betting, like sport. There, there's like sports betting apps that I can sign up for in like ten seconds, and I'm I'm well underage. Um, <laughs> but but you can't invest in like startups, which have been this like dominant force for good, and like one of the few ways for like people to actually gain value and and like like all of that is closed off to retail investors. So like mm-hmm. the, the average person has the only options for them are basically like pseudo gambling, you know, like trading crypto or trading stocks or trading NFTs or literally just sports betting, like. All of those things you can done with a click of a button, but investing with your investing in your friend's company or like investing in your team, you know, the people around you, you actually can't do, and that that's the problem. So yeah, I, I don't think that's scary. I think that's one of the things we're trying to fix. I think people should be investing in startups. I think like I think NFTs are super fun, but if if people could invest that money into their friend's company, yeah, they they would and they should. That's better for society. That's what people should be uh, able to do. So sorry, I was a little bit of a rant there, but no, I that's think like, that's this smart. Is what we're trying to get at. It um, is. And that's awesome. I also think it's scary that I can throw away $1,000 doing things like sports betting. Um, I don't know how like 
much of a fan I am with apps that make sports betting incredibly easy and other things like that. But I guess I, that's a different, I guess that's a different story. We actually talked about that as producers, how easy it is to kind of get in the cycle once you yeah. start using these tools. Um, but honestly, like you said, investing in your friend's company, investing in um, especially yeah. companies that you believe in should be an easier process because it's incredibly difficult. I think investing is an incredibly serious decision for most people. Like I think everyone contemplates it. I don't think people take it lightly. But what mm -hmm. is a pain is when you've gone through all the work of deciding that you're going to invest and then actually sending money is like a huge waste of time. So like it's like really hard to, to keep track of. So that's what we're trying to fix. Um, I think everyone should, you know, invest in, in, in their in startups around them very uh, with a lot of like, you know, consideration. Um, but when you're ready to invest, we want to make sure that process is accessible and quick for people. So you guys don't do anything right to help with like the due diligence process beforehand. It's simply just the investing no, we're, portion. We're not for we're not for investors. It's I mean we are for, we are investors, but but we're we're building for founders. So every mm -hmm. product decision we make is like how can we make this an incredible experience for founders to raise around on, um, and in doing so, we make it really easy for investors. But it isn't it isn't really about you guys. It's just, there's lots of platforms that are designed for investors, but Partygon is built to make it easy for founders to raise raise their round. So what makes it different between an app? that's geared for founders versus a platform that would be geared towards investors like what specific features make it a founder focused app yeah i think i think a lot of like the tools you'll see around like um you know i don't want to i don't want to spend this whole time shitting on a lot of like really cool platforms out there <laughs> um but they're they're designed with like you know they're not designed with ease of use in mind for founders um in in, in managing your round and like setting everything up um, and they're also oftentimes like built for a different type of like legal structure. So right now we're building for, you know, safes and, and priced rounds for founders to, to raise on. And I think a lot of these tools are just like, I, I there's different types. Like there's crowdfunding tools out there, which is like, you know, you stick a company up and anyone can put money into. And I think a lot of startups like don't really want to use that. There's things like AngelList where there's like roll up vehicles, but a lot of are like SBVs, but a lot of those aren't like founders don't have a say in them they like give away part of their part of their company just gets like sent out to random investors and even just simple stuff like the ui the like setting up the structure managing the money as it comes in they're not really designed with ease of use uh for a founder in mind so i i think it's a like using the app is is one of those experiences that like really has blown a lot of founders minds because it's it's so many things just make a ton of sense like you can upload your docs and start or kick off around super quickly like just a few tip taps um, and then you're given this screen where you, you can uh, manage all your invites that you're sending to your investors and friends and community members. And then you're just chilling there watching, you know, watching the invites, seeing money comes in, when money comes in, getting notified um, and tracking everything from your phone. So, yeah, I think, I think over the last decade, we've seen a transition from like web to, uh, to mobile. And I think Party Around is built with like web tooling in mind. You can raise around um, on a web browser, but the future of all these things is uh is mobile down the line and we're really excited about that so yeah i uh i uh i think it's i think there's not really other tools that are designed for for people building startups so i think that's awesome and i completely agree about uh putting importance about putting importance into ux and ui i feel like finance and fintech in general it's a total overlooked space especially in design obviously there are a few apps like here and there like 
Robin Hood, Wealthfront, that look really nice. But yeah. for example, like Fidelity, which is just something I use for like my Roth IRA is quite literally the ugliest and hardest to use app. If anybody out there wanted to design like a new app just for funsies for their portfolio, I highly yeah. recommend like doing a project with Fidelity because it sucks. Yeah. So it's good that you guys are focusing on the ease of use because I think like the barrier for that is becoming increasingly important. Like personally, I won't, this sounds bad, but like for a lot of apps, like if it, the app looks bad, the chances of me using it are very slim, yeah. even if it's like an incredibly useful app. Totally. Yeah. I mean, it isn't, I think the, our amazing UI, thanks to our, our, our head of uh, product and design, Brandon, Brandon Jacoby. Um, that's just the cherry on top of like a great experience. I think there's a lot of tools that you like can raise on, if that makes sense. Like you, mm -hmm. you it's possible to, but it requires a ton of work for founders. Like you got to upload all your docs. You got to talk to a lawyer. You got to get your legal docs organized. And then you like technically can track your fundraise, but you know, like you got to do all the wiring and it's a bad experience for both founders or investors. Um, and we compartmentalize that all on the app. So like we automate your legal docs, you literally just click start around um, and you can, handle all the valuations and terms in app with just a few clicks and we like all the all the flow of funds all the transfers are done super easily on the app and you don't have to do extra work so yeah i think it i think it all comes together it's like it's it's uh it's building a great experience across the board so anyway sorry it's not like, i'm sounding like i'm shilling our startup but it's a it's an amazing startup um, no the podcast is called uh, this week in startups so i mean like yeah, you're, yeah, you're at the right place to be doing that out here i will i yeah. can talk for for years about about how awesome party round is so. yeah well anyway yeah we yeah, can sorry, keep go going no we can keep going talking about how awesome party round is and like you said there's just like so many portions of party round that make it awesome one of which is its marketing marketing strategy which i know yes. you do a lot with can you talk to me about your role at Party Round to totally. marketing strategy behind it? Yeah, I think a lot of people sort of treat us like this startup that's like, oh, they have like a, a hypey Twitter about them. Um, we're a really product-focused startup. We just are also good at marketing. Um, I think people are seeing that now. Like when they use the app, they're like, oh, holy shit, this is an entirely engineering and product-focused startup. Um, but yeah, we're good at marketing on the side too. And I think, it, I think it's not because we're good marketers. We just like making cool shit, make, making stuff that we... Can I swear on this podcast? Or? Yep. Okay, cool. But, um, yeah we just like making like our, our strategy for marketing is pretty simple it's like we want to make stuff that's funny and we want to make stuff that's cool and we want to make stuff that's useful for founders and if we like it i think other people will like it and we've proven that um so we were just like we're gonna go out there and we're gonna have fun um i think a lot of startups underestimate like that building a brand is is uh is really important there's like a, a trend in the last i think five years silicon valley that's like you shouldn't worry at all about marketing you should just like ship and do engineering and like build out a really functional product and that's actually true it is totally true and we do that it's just like i'm not an engineer i <laughs> i can't sit there and like code we have a fantastic engineering team uh led by our dear brian armstrong is an amazing not the coinbase one the better one <laughs> head of engineering at party round um we have an amazing engineering team and they're fantastic and we have an amazing product team but uh, me and my boss, Dylan Abrascato, on the side, uh, we were having fun. We're just like showcasing our love for, you know, founders and, and the startup world and like building awesome things. So yeah, we have a couple strategies. We like, we have a, a very pop in Twitter, I'd say. Uh, a lot of founders use Twitter and we were like, hey, okay, at the start of this all, we were like, we want to reach founders. We are our founders. And I think like tech Twitter and, and crypto Twitter are like this, this really rare high density conglomeration of people building stuff. Um, so we immediately like, let's just channel all our energy into it. Um, and Twitter is great. It's amazing. It's a really meritocratic platform in the sense of like good stuff comes to the top. So we just make good stuff. We make stuff we find funny and we, uh, we interact with our, 
with our followers heavily. Um, and it's been great. We've had endless amounts of founders come through our Twitter. We have a wait list. It's like 40,000 strong right now. And we are onboarding founders as fast as we can. Um, but it, uh, Twitter was incredible for us. And then we also do drops, which are just like launches of like little mini products that are kind of unrelated. Sometimes they're fun. Sometimes they're useful. Sometimes they're like just fucking insane. Um, <laughs> and those have done really well and gone viral and, and brought more founders on board. So yeah, yeah I, can- I, uh, I can dive into that's sort of what I do at Party Round. I, I'm like a growth hacker. So I do a lot of our Twitter and community and I also build these products on the side to go viral. Um, but yeah, do you want to, can I jump into some of the drops? I think you should jump into some of the drops. And I also think you should like rebrand yourself as like a professional shit poster. I don't think, I, I actually like don't, I mean, I think I'm funny on Twitter, but it's not really what I want to be. Um, eventually I, I'm more excited by like building great tools and, uh, I have fun posting, but like one of the things we're talking about right now is like party around is this super functional product. And we want to make mm-hmm. sure we don't, we don't really get carried away with that. There's like, yeah, I think it's like a skill. You can be funny on Twitter. It doesn't mean to be your whole, you know, your whole lifestyle identity. Um, so there's stuff so, for you down the line outside of marketing. I mean, there's stuff. Yeah. I, I don't, I, I think even our drops and our, our Twitter in the last, it didn't really, really functional. Like we had, we have had some pretty, uh, some pretty cool tools. Like, uh, like big tech fellowship was this, was this, um, it was this drop that we made that we, paid someone $50,000 to quit wow. their big check job uh, and go make a startup. And I mean, it's totally fun and like mischief-esque and very exciting. Um, and it got a ton of viral hype around it, but it is, that's like a really cool thing. Like we totally transformed someone's life um, and they're building an awesome startup right now. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think I want to make stuff that helps the, like, I just want to make cool stuff. And I think some of those drops already have been highly functional. So yeah, we have fun on Twitter, but I think it comes from a place of like, what do we find funny? What do we find cool? And what do we find useful? And we hope that uh, founders agree. So what yeah, other, I, I, do you yeah, have like any uh, advice on Twitter and on branding in general that you think could be used by a multitude of startups? Like, is there founders? any one point in people's, yeah. yeah, by founders, do you see any branding that you're just like, this sucks so hard that people can change? <laughs> I'm to like roast Twitter brands. I'm not going to do yeah, that. Yeah, literally, I, no, go uh, for it. Because I feel I like there's that, some stuff that's being reused on Twitter no, over and over tw- and again. Twitter's and a really hard platform and I think people don't get used to that. So like Instagram and stuff, are they very like repetitive, mm-hmm. like, platform so like you win by posting a ton basically like just getting very consistent with posts and twitter is not like that at all it's highly exponential so like a viral tweet will get exponentially more than like a hundred normal tweets so you really just you should really just focus on like like hitting home runs if that makes sense like i can do a hundred tweets a day and you know they'll get like they'll get like i don't know like a thousand views each but if i do one viral tweet in that same time frame it will get millions of impressions so I think the problem is people take that strategy. A lot of brands are constantly trying to retweet and post stuff and constantly like have a really good calendar schedule for like content. And that's bad actually. Like, like face it, you're a brand. Like we're highly cognizant of the fact we're a brand. Our followers don't want their timeline crowded up with fucking brand stuff. Like we, they don't, they don't want the founders are busy people and Twitter's a really useful tool, man. They got to be like checking out hiring they gotta be checking out other stuff so the only time we're on a founder's timeline is like if we have something that we find really funny or really cool and that's the only time that we're interrupting you um so yeah i think that's probably the main problem with brands it's like stop stop posting so much you're you're a brand so um that's what i'd say i but i think it's i think it's uh i think it's a great platform once you get the hand of it as a uh, as a as a company I, i would say this though like Twitter's really useful, but it's only useful for certain types of things. So it's like, I don't think every brand should go on Twitter. Um, 
Like I think some should. Um, and if you have the assets to like do it, like we have a lot of flexibility because we have two really fantastic marketers on the team and mm-hmm. we can, we can go wherever we want, but like you need to, as a founder, invest in specific avenues. So Twitter was our first one because it was like, this is where 90% of our customer base is out is always on. Um, and now we're sort of reaching out to other sectors and sections, but yeah, just make a strategic decision. Like our drops and our Twitter strategy and everything was a highly strategic decision that we made that was like, here's where founders are the densest. So you need to look at that yourself. Like, I don't think that people should just do drops as a strategy. Like we love mischief and we had a really good game plan around how we did our drops. But the truth is marketing is like you, it's about making something fresh. And if everyone's making drops, which they are now, it's like, it loses the the excitement. So, so yeah. like people who copy our strategy, they, it's like trying to copy like a high frequency hedge fund trader a week after they've made their trades. Like it just doesn't make sense. Like we're already, we're still doing drops, of course, but we're already working on other things. Like we're really excited about, you know, dinners for founders and just like, um, creating like new types of really interesting content for people in the tech world. Um, and we're excited by like longer term structures. Like, like I think we want to productize things like the, the big tech fellowship or, or mm-hmm. like founder houses or just, there's a ton of other things. Like it's, you got to find what's next. Um, and you got to find what fits for your brand. Um, like we, we were in a situation where we didn't want to talk about our product publicly for seven months. And I think a lot of startups will just like not market at all, but we were like, we're going to still have fun. So we were the class clowns of the tech world. We were interacting with founders. We built this like founder brand and then we launched our product. Um, and we told everyone what we were, but uh, you got to strategize for yourself. So I, I, I think it's fine to not do marketing. If you don't have the resources for it, it's not always the best investment we could. And we did it really well. And so it was an amazing investment. It got us a lot of hires it got us connected with, you know, amazing investors. Um, and it put us in touch mainly, most importantly, with like a bunch of founders. But yeah, I think it comes from a strategic place. Figure out who you're trying to reach um, and then figure out a fresh and exciting way to reach them. Um, and don't just copy what people tell you to do on marketing. So yeah, it super frustrates me whenever I see, um, and most of the time I see these on TikToks, but it'll people that do like social media marketing managers or whoever they are. And they just like tell you trends or like this sound is trending right now. And I'm like, oh my God, that's going to create like such bad content. If you just yep. regurgitate what's trending right now, rather than putting like a th- critical thought or yep. try to incorporate like your brand's voice rather than just totally. speaking out um, and copying what everybody else is doing. Marketing is kind of like, it's like Buddhist in a way where it's like, you have to give up the pursuit of what you're trying to do to reach it. So if I go into marketing and I'm like, oh, fuck, I need like a million impressions this week. I'm not going <laughs> to hit that. But if I go yeah. in from a perspective of like, I'm going to make something really beautiful and share with the world. I'm going to make something that like, that like is, is good and is helpful. That will do that is like something that's a value out of the world. And I think a yeah. lot of marketers approach it from like a, oh, I need to like, I need to rip up my, uh, I need to get more reach. I got to get these numbers yeah. up, you know. And we were like just talking negative, about that's this. That's like a value extraction way of looking at marketing. And marketing is really mm-hmm. just like make beautiful things. So yeah, well, you and I were just talking about this yesterday, how I was like, I just want to create really good content. And I think that yep. it's so easy to stray away from that though. And like, I'm definitely at fault of that. Like, what can I post right now that I know will get like the most hype, even on like my own personal accounts? Like what, yep. trying to think of everything strategically rather than just trying to create content because I like creating content at the end of the day. That's who you, I think people and brands should want their marketing professionals to be. We have a drop coming in the next like couple days that is like so Super useful exciting. for founders. It's uh, I can't really talk about it because it's, it's going to be out in like a week. By the time people hear it, it will probably be out. But 
it is like a, such a highly functional tool for founders. I'm really excited. So we we try and mix it up. We've done like collabs. We've done like mischief style drops that make yeah. you like scratch that makes you like crack up. And we've done like just funny stuff. And we've done like things that are like actually change the world. And now we're like, let's just make a really useful tool for founders <laughs> and drop that. So I'm excited. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's a, uh, it's a great team and we're having a ton of fun in the marketing and we're also, uh, yeah, we're also having fun building a great, a great product. So I just want to talk about how you got this job because yeah. I know you're 19 years old. I know that yeah. you also hate that I mentioned that you're 19 years old, but I think it's absolutely freaking incredible because you're obviously very well versed and very good at your job. I'm like, I'm not though. I'm five years older than you. Yeah, I'm five years old. I'm barely, I'm barely a gen. <laughs> now, nah, just kidding. You're like full, um, full, full Gen Z. But how did you get this job? Were you yeah. in high school or were you like directly out of high school? First off, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's jump real quick to to, to party on stuff, and then I can talk some more about my like my my okay. life my life path. So, uh, I I was pretty much like messing around a little bit online and i was making kind of like fun little products that went viral and jordy just picked me up off twitter and dm me and was like um i want you to join my new startup uh this was what right do you after. mean like little products that went viral um maybe we should just actually start from like so i, I guess we should we should bring it back because it, it makes sense <laughs> in the picture. i'm sorry i'm, I'm fucking up your podcast but no uh, you're not at all don't worry cool. about it. yes i was i was in high school um i wanted to get into the tech world and I was, I was, I'd, I'd like fall in love with startups like HQ, Trivia, and like Citizen from a young age. Uh, and when you're in high school, there's like four jobs you know about. It's like investment banker, doctor, or lawyer. Um, so I was like, okay, before I make a startup, I got to go like work at Bain for like four years. So I went to a good college for finance. Um, and I was like, I'm going to go like do like, I'm going to go like, you know, my classic gunner route and like go work at like deloitte or something anyway super lame stuff this is just like you just don't know this stuff when you're young um i i'm 19 so my first year of high school my senior year of high school like covid was already starting then so my first year of college like i, I couldn't be on campus or anything um so i ended up just like dropping out um i started messing around a little bit in like the venture world and i quickly realized that like the parts i like about finance were venture capital and the parts that i like about venture capital were startups um and so pretty quickly i was like okay i want to go make a leap uh, into a good startup as fast as I can. Uh, it took me a long time to find a really great startup. I worked for Justin Khan for a little bit um, as a, I like basically helped run his fund, Goat Capital, for a while. Um, and then at the same time, I was just getting into like, I was just like sort of playing around on the internet. So I would like skip my finals, my midterms and stuff and skip my classes. And I would just like, uh, for the like, for the two months I was in college, I would just like mm -hmm. spend it all on Clubhouse and I would just talk to people. Um, but yeah, I, I, I spent a lot of time in venture and then I was like, okay, this, this sucks. <laughs> venture as a, as a, mm -hmm. as a student, as a young person is a total scam. Uh, I don't have any decision making here. I want to go build something that I can like take ownership of. So I pretty quickly was like, I want to go join a startup. Um, I, Jory just picked me up. He's messaged me off Twitter because he saw some of the stuff I was doing and was like, I want to talk to you about my new startup. And we got on a call and pretty quickly we were like, just, it was electric. Like we were, we were both like, Oh, I am really inspired by mischief. I just want to make really cool stuff. And I pitched him this thesis actually that I was, I was working out for marketing. I ended up actually, I got another job offer. I got a job offer to Oof. do product that do not pay. Um, and so I called up my mentors and I was like, here's the situation. This is a company that I like. Um, that's, you know, given me a good stable role and they're a big company. Not, you know, not big, but like they're an established company at the time. They were like worth $80 million. Um, and there's other like new startup that literally is like, it was Jordan and Sarah, the founders. They're married. Um, it was their company. They just started it. They had like, they were in the process of hiring Brandon at the time. 
Um, and it was like, it was like so new. And I was like, but I'm, I'm really excited about what they're doing. Like, I think it's world changing. And my mentors are fantastic. I, uh, I owe a lot of people like my parents and, um, JD Moresco, um, David Zhao. These are like these people that have just taught me a ton. They were all like, that's great, but you, you should take the like stable, get your foot in the door career thing. Um, so I ended up, I ended up picking job pay. Uh, but then they, I got like a bad reference check or something. I, it was like an awkward process. I, the founder of it told me I was interviewing for marketing and then he put me on a call with like the head of product who I only found out like 45 minutes into the interview was actually interviewing me for a product role. So the whole time I was pitching marketing stuff, I'm like, we can change marketing forever. And he was like, so do you want to do product here? And I was like, oh, oh <laughs> wrong thing. Anyway, it, it fell through. Um, so I was like stuck. I, I just got in a place in SF so I could work down there for them. And I was like, oh my God, I don't have a job. I just dropped out of college for this. Uh, I have like no credentials. I had like a thousand Twitter followers at the time. So I called Jordy. And I'm like, I will like, I, I'm sorry. <laughs> like I was like, <laughs> I, I, I basically was just like, let's, uh, I was pissed off at the time too. I was like super spiteful. I was like, I, I will mess. I will, I will f- up. Let me fl- fl- put me in coach. Um, so Jordy was like, this is awesome. We, I joined party around May 10th. Um, it was like, nine or ten months ago dang Um, so you sound like the most ideal candidate by the way let me just say this now you sound like the most ideal candidate for a startup because i think if you find somebody that is like young super passionate and ready just to absolute i always i don't i think you might have tweeted something similar to this how like it's how i don't even know how to put it but you tweeted something yeah what was it about like I don't think it's bad to like be spiteful. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, that yeah, one? I was arguing with some guy. Yeah, I mean, I think that's like one of the purposes of life is like getting back and like showing. But maybe I'm just a spiteful motherfucker, so that could be. <laughs> it. But like, I think it's a beautiful process. Like, I think people are really scared of being like petty and revengeful, but these are like the stories and legends that make like life worth living, like victory, achieving, achieving victory, proving yeah. yourself, proving your worth. Um, so I have no hard feelings against uh, like. No, nothing is nothing like, is more motivating than hearing totally, somebody else totally. say no. I like was, nothing was, is more motivating than being told no. I so I feel we that. took we took I took all that strategy I wrote for them and then I immediately put it to work for party round and I was like, I'm gonna build this this uh I had like no idea what the fuck I was doing because I was just out of high school. So I'm like sitting there and Jordy's like, yo, like let's uh let's do marketing. I was I was like Googling like how to market a start a startup. Anyway, we just quickly got a base <laughs> what on the strategy, is Figma? which is like Oh yeah, literally. It was like I remember making the party around marketing notion. I was just sitting there staring at this new tab called marketing in, in our notion. I'm like, I have no I'm way over in my head right now. But yeah, it was strategies pretty quickly. We were like, all right, founders are on on Twitter. We want to reach founders and we want to make cool stuff and cool content and have a ton of fun. Um and I would say we've we've crushed that over the past month. I don't know if people like know us. I don't want to be arrogant if like people on this podcast don't know Party Round, but check us out. We have a really sick sick product and we also have a ton of fun online so uh we have we have done quite well for the few of our drops in terms of marketing um one of the ones we made was this nft drop back when nfts were cool it was called helpful vcs oh it's bad dang so wait jason was jason i think was a one of them right and he was also like Shh. jason got all whiny because yeah. he used his face he was like Uh-oh. oh sorry am i not no, 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 i guess it. i can't get no, no, jason no. on this podcast no, you jason do literally it. You DM'd us and was like like, oh, are you allowed to, like, you're using my face out of line. And we're like, dude, 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 it's all good. We're like, it's, we're having fun. We're like, we donated all the process, proceeds from that to like, to other, to like, we gave it out in grants to founders. Um, but yeah, we made NFTs of VCs. 
and their likeness in CryptoPunk style. And we were like, if you want these, you have to retweet to claim. And just like everyone went, they just like lost it. It was like all these. Did like, anybody like, get Jason? Did anyone get Jason? Oh, J- I think Jason retweeted it to, to get his own. Jason got his. So I love every VC on the block was like, I need this. Um, and it was amazing. We had a ton of reach. Um, and then we took around and took all the money we made from it and we gave it out to founders. Um, but yeah, it was really fun. It was a really fun drop. Anytime you can sort of play around with VCs, egos, we have a lot of fun with that. Yeah, Mischief is one. So for those of you who don't know, because we've been mentioning Mischief a lot, Mischief is an art collective. I believe they're actually based in Brooklyn. Um, Gabe, I I believe, is like the founder. They're they're trying to be an art collective. They're a a product studio. They do Um, audacious stuff. They made Grimes out of sword um, on a red carpet event, and the sword was made by Mischief, and it was like a repurposed gun, which is kind of cool. They do a bunch of stuff. I'm going to hot take this, because I Mm want to preface this by saying I'm a spiteful, like, sad bitter person oh my god i've always been slightly offended that mischief has never tried to hire me because when you're like a growth hacker mischief is like the harvard of the growth hacking world um i think they've i think it's like they had a set an amazing standard and they totally changed the way people look at like products and marketing but i think they've fallen off a tiny bit in part because a lot of the really talented people there have like gone on to go work and lead other startups yeah it's like andrew watts head of marketing at simulate is like an amazing example he's like one of the most talented funny people i know um i barely even know him but he's he's close friends with my boss still never scott um but yeah i i think mischief is uh they're struggling with like repetition and keeping it fresh it's really hard to like over to productize that things so, like there's a lot of pressure on them every week you have to have something cool they had an yeah. sat drop that was pretty neat but um i think it's a little like i uh I like the dead startup toys where they had like the actual desk toys, but for like, like it was like Elizabeth Holmes, Theranos lab, like desk toy, like how investment bankers have toys that sit on their desk. But these were like toys that were just of dead startups. I, I like that drop. I thought that drop Did was you cool. get any of the toy? I feel like I'm shit talking. I don't I want the Elizabeth talk. Holmes one. Mischief if anybody has one, I want one, please, it please, was, please, it please. Was, it was, they were like really cheap plastic toys. But anyway, I'm, okay, I'm, okay. Mischief, changed my, mischief changed my life in terms of inspiration. Um, but yeah, no, we we bought a bunch of those toys. We did. We have a bunch in our we office. Didn't. We have oh, one. Oh my gosh! Look out! Like, I'm about to like, don't rob you guys. We, we, we they're on my rob list. Okay. Yeah, we'll no, we'll give them to you for free. They don't work. They don't work. That's what I'm what? saying. What? Just pla- the, the, the Theranos one, dude, is literally just a chunk of plastic with a sticker on yeah. it. Yeah. I thought, isn't that what like investment banking toys are though? Like the literally like the deal. It's not called deal toys, right? And they just like deal sit toys. on your desk. Yeah. yeah speaking is that, like, speaking of deal toys, um, we have NFT deal toys when you close around at party ground. Wow. Um, so is it like a deal? Wait, do you get a toy, we, physical toy that looks like a no, you, board you get, or do you so get like this a This is actually NFT? inspired by Jason. Jason, you know, has always been oh. like, I was one of the early checks in Uber, um, which he probably yeah, he was. Once or twice. We don't want to leave that up to like, we think the blockchain is a great, like, um, a, a great use case. So, so for like commemorating these things and, and tracking them and putting them on record. So when you invest in a company, um, you, it's on it's on the blockchain and you can you get this is mostly just for a for fun thing we're not an nft startup but we just we, this, is a, this is exactly how we approach products where it's like we want to build useful stuff for founders and we also just want to have fun um so yeah when you when you raise around as a founder your investors get nfts to commemorate their investments um they can flex and show off and they're really pretty so so do you think it's more important to do things like these drops and to have really thoughtful outside the box marketing or do you think it's important for a brand to absolutely just double down on on twitter like on one platform like which oh, one do you think? I mean, we're kind of. I think it's like a strategy thing. I would say we're doubling down on Twitter. Our our drops are good on Twitter. I we're we're only now getting into things like Instagram and other form of content. But I, it's really just a strategy thing. Figure out where the people you're trying to talk to are. Go to them. 
So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, if we were a CBG brand, I'd be on Instagram. So, yeah. Yeah. That's something that really frustrates me. Sometimes when I see brands that are CPG, um, a lot of brands I've noticed that are more geared towards fun food. I've noticed a lot lately are on Twitter go over to Instagram and blow up Instagram. I think fun food on Instagram, my mom, my mother will spend endless amounts of money. If you have a link to a fun food product, that woman is, and that woman is not on Twitter. Like I can tell you that. I I think it's really really cool. It's all about like doing, like finding value in marketing. It's very similar to like, I just like, if everyone is on Instagram for something, you know, it's actually not, there's some really cool CPG things that have popped up on Twitter. So it's really just about strategy, but it's like everyone's on CPG Instagram. Sometimes you can actually get really good alpha on, uh, on other platforms. So, but yeah, no, I, I agree with you, but, uh, I think it's always about like, yeah, coming up with, with creative stuff. There's a few CPG brands I like on, on Twitter, but anyway, we aren't a CPG company. Unfortunately, we did do a CPG drop once, but really, uh, yeah, it was Cometeer Coffee. It was Party oh, Grounds. Wait. Yeah, wait. Party Grounds. Um, I just talked to somebody that works there. So Cometeer Coffee, there's, they're like these little pods, but they're not K-cups, but it's basically just condensed coffee. So, totally. you know, the shipping and supply chain is a lot better. So yeah. we actually just had on the Canna founder, which also has like a similar ideology where it just costs so much money to freaking ship like the supply chain of beverages is like psycho and Cometeer coffee is similarly in that realm of like, you know, it's really expensive to ship um, liquids. Cometeer coffee has like condensed coffee, I believe in like little pods. Um, and you guys did party ground, like you just said, and the packaging looked really sick. Brandon follow, follow at Brandon Jacoby on, on Twitter. He's amazing. Was it Brandon Jacoby that did it? Brandon Jacoby. Well, I was a, yeah, he is like, I mean, all these things are a team effort. Like when we talk about product and marketing, it's the whole team getting involved, but, uh, He's an incredible designer. So, yeah, head of Mark and uh, and PM. Oh, sorry, it's at Jacoby Brandon. I'm I'm fucking with it up. Sorry, sorry, Brandon. Dang. It's at Jacoby Brandon. We have a so we have a challenge right now. First of us to 10k followers gets to make the other person get a tattoo. So I really shouldn't be shouting him out, but I'm I'm pretty confident I'm going to beat him to 10k. So, what are you going to get um, a tattoo? Or anyway. do you want to get a tattoo of like the party round circles, like your guys's logo? Yeah, I think I will get a tattoo. I'm waiting till I get my equity just because, like, you know, I feel like that's just, like, a, a more, more, once I invest, I'm, I'm getting that tattoo. So, um, so you yeah, also have a tattoo of something else that has to do with NFTs, right, on your arm? Oh, God, don't expose mm-hmm. like this. Yeah, I uh, I have a, a ERC-721 tattoo. It's... It's uh. It's and what does that mean? What is ER? It what is I'm that? I'm a loser. My, no, my no. thesis on my thesis on tattoos is like you gotta explain what you, you gotta explain what that is. You gotta explain what that is because people it's listening. A, it's a it's a DAO. I got a tattoo to join a DAO. You got me. I'm an idiot. Um, but it's isn't just, that like the really legal good. the legal document? Right? Like the actual tattoo you have is the name of the legal document for NFTs or something like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So ERC seven twenty one is a type of token, um, Ethereum token that lets NFTs, you know, work. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's I just got a tattoo to join a little group chat. It's really fun. So you'll like meet other tech people around That's the world so and they'll have the same tattoo and then we like tap each other up. That's pretty good for community um, building. It is. It is really fun. Um, 60 seconds left, Rachel. What, is, what are the final questions here? We can oh, go over. Oh man, we're gonna have to go over because we haven't even okay, talked about... Over. That's um, good. I do want to pivot our conversation a little bit more to um, just young people living in New York City, yeah, especially yeah. young people living in cities that work in tech. Yep. Tell me your um, thoughts. Yeah, in general, I think like a uh, good place is, I think you should just get to a city if you're young and you're a technologist or you're building cool things. Um, I think the first decision is like where you want to go. SF, Miami, New York, 
Um, I'm very biased. I lived in SF for about eight months. Um, it was great, but I, uh, yeah, actually, I don't really have any hate to SF. I think SF is really cool when you're young. I know there's a lot of like people hyping up the crime in SF right now, but it's like if you're young, you know, like just carry some pepper spray, hang out with a bunch of like find find friends that can fight. No, I'm kidding. It's really not that bad. Um, but uh, New York was my first love, so I, I I love New York. I think a lot of people should come here. I think mm-hmm. Miami's cool. I just no one gets work done in Miami. I also like every time I go to Miami, there's like a ton of drama and shit that goes down. So. I just, like, don't want to work in Miami. I don't know. New York's great. I, you guys should come to New York. Um, but, yeah, dropping out is, like, is a is a little bit of a a unique situation because you do, you do trade off a lot of, like, I guess I would say, like, social life. And, and anytime you have to make a decision around college, it's, like, it's like okay, credentialing, um, credentials, connections for business, connections for, like, friends, like, your relationships, and then, like, how does this actually help you in your career? Um, I think credentialing in general in college is stupid because college is like a fallback plan. It's like basically like, oh, fuck, I don't have a job. I need a college degree to like get a job. But like, that's a fallback plan. You're planning for like the worst case scenario where you can't get hired. And I just don't think many, many people, especially in tech, like a lot of people in tech are trying to do insane things with their life. Like I'm risking my entire life on like the one in a zillion chance that I can be someone who makes something absolutely great which is i'd say that chance is higher now that i work at party around no I'm, I'm kidding but like um yeah like don't live your life for fallback plans that being said uh it's great to like not have responsibility like i'm 19 and i live like a, I live like i'm just in my mid-20s and that's some of the things i'm like i'm i didn't really have an option because I, I wasn't gonna have any community at college anyway because it was in covid but i think people nowadays it's like do really consider the situation uh deeply um it's nice to not have a ton of responsibility it's nice to have a period in your life where you don't have to like just be an adult and uh college is great for that um i personally hated college because i didn't like being just like a normal person like i was just a guy there you know like i i think it's partly because i'm i'm very like um uh dude maybe i'm just like a narcissist no i just like i believe in myself a lot to a fault and it was like having this sort of dissonance when you get to college and just being like another guy there was like i was like this sucks i do not want to have just i don't want to be normal so i was like i'm gonna go and i'm gonna go and gamble with my life and try and try and do something great um but how yeah, do you I like think it's, find I, community how do you find community without so like if you're like oh, blatantly honest like over yeah. then you're if you're over 21 i i guess like we met in a we work so we works and co-working <laughs> spots are like very cool places um we also met well actually we met in a, get a fake ID. i'd say the first thing you need if you're a college dropout get a fake id um yeah i mean new york is unique like even if you go to college in new york yeah. it's not like you're going to college it's more like you're just like like going to nyu is the closest thing to dropping out you can do without <laughs> dropping out so um, explain it, explain your thoughts on there it's like a commuter college you like, literally NYU have so much nyu hate new it is i don't insane. have NYU hate. i have a lot of friends at nyu i think nyu is a great school i would have loved to go to nyu i didn't go to i couldn't have gotten in so uh i'll i'll say that I, i'm just saying like, school new york specifically is a unique scenario but i think there's lots of ways like tech is one of the most welcoming opening places for connections i agree um I like even last week I tweeted like how do I meet people to go party with that aren't in tech and like a billion really cool tech people replied and so I'm spending the next like four weeks just hanging out with more awesome tech people I I I think it's important to be like I I that's my tribe like I Mm -hmm. I I love people that are trying to do great things with their life and I uh, I think I've made a ton of lifelong friends doing hacker houses and and stuff I I would strategize like if you're a young person you want to drop out consider that deeply and then if you're ready to like basically sacrifice your life to do something amazing or try and take that risk, drop out, uh, figure out a hacker house in a city somewhere. If you're young, uh, go live there and meet a lot of really cool people in the did city. You do, did you do a hacker house in SF? Yeah. Yeah. So me and my, 
I uh, I did Edify. Edify unfortunately just got um I don't actually know a lot of what I'm gonna say. Edify no longer exists. Uh it was an amazing like nine month project though. It was a bunch of houses around the world, uh in SF Canada houses in Seattle and in mm-hmm. New York. Um and it was amazing. I think I'm sad Edify doesn't exist anymore, but the founders are my roommates and uh they're doing something really awesome. Um so that's very I, I think hacker houses are fantastic. Um but yeah, I would say go down there, meet a bunch of people like you. It was really great. It was like we we had a house in SF that was like ten of us in this like mansion that we all were like I was like sharing a room with some guy and you just meet a lot of like fantastic people. Like the difference from college was immediately apparent. These are people that were like doing absolutely insane stuff in their lives. Um but yeah, it's it's like tech versions of college. So I yeah. always think we should keep that open. I know Edify doesn't exist anymore, but there's there's new stuff already popping out in cities 100%. around the world. Yeah, I saw our, it, so. we, our mutual friend Ami, I believe, is in one. Yes. Yeah. Ami's great. I don't, I, uh, Ami's letting tech people ball out. I, yeah, uh, he's, he's a, he's, he's a 19-year-old. He's messing with a, up the, the balling economics. He literally <laughs> is. So we have a friend that is also, I believe, 19, and he has a DAO called Dropout DAO and is currently living, I believe, in a hack house. Or something equivalent yeah. to a hacker house. And he seems like he's absolutely killing it in SF. Um, yeah. I agree. I think that it's very difficult, though, for people outside of the tech community to understand how welcoming yeah. the tech community is. Because when I tell my friends, yeah, we met on Twitter, that doesn't necessarily, like, go over yeah. the conversations on different when you're talking to a non-tech person. I'm speaking of the quiet here because I think this podcast will mostly be shared on Twitter. But, like, getting on Twitter is is so important. It's uh, It's an incredible platform. It's, like... It's like a life-changing platform. I've done like almost all the good things in my life have come from Twitter to a point where like, I'm pretty sure I'll, like, I'll probably like get married to someone off Twitter. I'm, I'm kidding. But I hope that doesn't happen. But like, it's just such a huge portion of yeah. the things in my life that have been good have come out of Twitter. Like I got hired yeah. off Twitter. I found, I found that I, I met my Twitter. roommates off Twitter. Yeah, I got ben hired just, off Twitter. Ben, ben hit me up and was like, I'm making this house in SF mm-hmm. uh, called Edify. Do you want to join? And I was like, yes. Um, sure that, that let me functionally drop out of school. So I think we should always keep that route open for technologists. I agree. And I think that it's, it's Twitter's one of those platforms too, where you, the chances of you signing to someone's DMs that's doing something like you think is absolutely amazing and them responding are incredibly oh, yeah. high. There's literally no so other huge. platform. When we're doing Outbound and I have to get like a really cool founder um, on the show, my first place I go is it's Twitter because always. like it's just amazing. Yeah. I, uh, you can just like tweet at people too. I forget what I just did, but I, uh, Oh yeah, I wanted to meet Jackson Jackson Dahl, who's the guy who uh, is a co-founder of Hundred Thieves. He's like a huge, huge idol to me. And I I mm-hmm. was in East Denver, and I was like, I just tweeted out like, "Yo, I want to meet Jackson Dahl." And uh, turns out a few of my f- uh, friends, um, Michael. You're Dempsey, talking about One Hundred Thieves, like League of Legends. Oh yeah, I'm a, I'm a huge League nerd on the side, so I have an I have okay. an Anon account where I actually just like write sports and like five thirty eight style sports analytic blogs, but for uh, but for esports um that's awesome so anyway huge yeah but i actually was talking to him about founder stuff uh, and like his career his career and his visions and like how he makes decisions so he's awesome but anyway michael dempsey is this amazing investor at compound and uh, a really good basketball player too and he uh we're he's just like oh yeah i i uh, i'm good friends with jackson so he just connected me and it was awesome so yeah twitter's, twitter's life-changing um you do need to build a like it's definitely getting more like powerful for me right now because i have like I'm about to hit, it sounds like, I'm not, I don't actually don't have that many followers, but as soon as you get like a good, uh, critical mass of followers, it becomes this incredible tool. So yeah. I wonder where like Mark Andreessen has thought of my tweets. Cause like statistically he has, has he seen, them? seen them. Yeah. I mean, 
He retweeted one of my tweets once, oh. but but like I don't think he it didn't come from me, you know. It came. It was like retweeting something that Turner Novak retweeted. That was from us, but um yeah sometimes i just wonder like when paul graham is scrolling twitter and he sees like a like a party around like meme tweet like i wonder what he thinks so yeah well i saw like alexis oharian respond i just think he, he's probably like an investor of your guys's but like does he yeah, follow seven, like i feel like seven, that's seven, like kind of cool. is a is an investor in party rounds um very awesome i think one of the good strategies founders can do to like boost their their like stuff on twitter is like just go get your investors to like like and comment they're, they're amazing packy austin um nick sharma nick milanovich um oh, nick sharma Will. another good person in the marketing in the marketing world pretty much all those guys like they are and i'm sure i'm sure i'm missing a ton we have a ton of people that help us alexis too they just like they interact with our tweets they're like really it's like a a, a low lift for them but it's still a mm-hmm. really valuable value add so um, do you have any like founder? recommendations though on like building your personal brand as a founder as like an individual not a brand on twitter yeah yeah um honestly no i <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. i don't know um yeah i haven't really thought about that this i see a lot really of people dumb. tweet is it again though like qual um quality over quantity because i see a lot of people that just spit out so much so much Dude, content I, I think if you're like trying to i think like obviously it's good to think about a personal brand but like i'm my twitter is very personal I'm not trying mm-hmm. to like make it go big. So mm-hmm. I actually am going to probably be, I'm going to be a little sad if it gets any bigger, but um, yeah, I don't know. I, I think your personal brand is, is uh, you know, like obviously the basics, like tell good stories, but otherwise I'd just be like, stop, stop caring so much. Just be yourself. Yep. Have I was just about to say, I actually hate the term personal brand because it makes me feel like a commodity. Like somebody today texted me. You that can commodify. She, yeah. She was like, can I help you with your personal brand? I was like, I don't know. I don't know. Because like, I don't want to, I don't, I don't think you need help with your personal brand. I feel like you have a pretty good one uh so, thank you i don't know yeah. yours I don't, i'm not out here almost at five thousand followers have to say five thousand people is so small. don't want to don't want to listen to what i have to say the only platform where you can have like 5k followers and consistently reach like millions of people that's like, true I think probably like well no tiktok people. i think tiktok you could do that mm, i definitely think as, with TikTok. As, no not with like 5k followers i, I think so i, would, I think I you could totally have like i've seen literally accounts with like 500 followers hit like a million views I mean, yeah, I mean, I've seen, yeah, there, you can also, like, go viral with, like, nothing on, on TikTok, but it's very random where I can consistently, with 5K followers, like, get an insane amount of impressions, but, yeah, I, I mean, I think the value of, like, a Twitter impression is so much more valuable than, like, a TikTok impression. Then TikTok's I don't think, view, I, think, I agree. I also think TikTok's heavily restrictive in, like, what type of content can do well there, so, yeah. I'm, what do you mean? I'm, like, very anti-TikTok in terms of, like, using it as your main marketing channel. Mm-hmm. Unless you're like a brand that's like just like selling to like kids, ah, uh, just because it's like stuff won't go viral unless it's like funny. Um, well, I can like make a product announcement and get like a zillion impressions. So, I think it's not great for building a personal brand because you have to like bow to the algorithm. Twitter has no real algorithm; it's really mathematical. It's just like if people like and comment on stuff, it gets it's like allows it to get more views. So it's very it's yeah. very much like a mathematical function versus like this yeah this uh this constantly changing tracking algorithm. So. Yeah, I mean, I think Twitter's more meritocratic in terms of content. I think you can do better things. I, uh, I think one of these days, just to like prove myself, like I I am really good as as good of a growth hacker and like viral, like mimetic person as I think I am, then I should go and prove that by making myself an influencer. So I might spend like I might start that in like a month or two. Like spend six months become an influencer, influencer. but like as a joke, (laughs) not as a joke, just for like to to prove it. I mean, it's like if I if I am really good, the stuff as I could, um, I should do that. Right now, I'm working on writing a lot. I think that's probably gonna be my next thing. I want to like. Party rounds are going to be for the next like X amount of years. I'm, I love the team. I love working for Jordy. I'm learning a ton there, but I also like, 
I probably wanted to start building like little mini side projects on the side, um, especially in like in like crypto or in like viral like memetic stuff. And then I want to write more, um, so I'm yeah. starting a blog. This have you read Wanting? Section. You keep saying you keep saying memetic. Have you read the book Wanting yet? No, 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 I haven't. What is that? Good one. It's all are, about are you, memetics. Are you, saying, are you saying wanting as in like that's so, so that's actually mimetic. You're you're saying M I M E T I C. I'm saying M E M E T I C. So mimetics with an I is is sort of the theory of how things that are alike, like very similar, naturally come into conflict. And mimetics, which I'm talking about, is basically the Memetics are like the traits that enable ideas to survive and spread. Um, Got so you. Memetics actually is this like this like cultural uh, like it was like this term created and then immediately like killed by its creators. Like it's it's uh it's a not even considered true um, in like cultural idea theory. It's like not it's like it's like this term that was immediately left for dead and like thrown to the corners of the internet, but it survived. Um, and so I find it incredibly fascinating. It's basically how like. Like, I mean, animals have, like, speed or, like, strength or intelligence, and that mm-hmm. helps them evolve and stay alive. But, like, being fast isn't the point of being an animal. Just, like, staying around kind of is the point of evolution. And so, memetics are the traits that make ideas good at sticking around. So, like, truth or, like, not true or, like, virality. Those are all traits that ideas use to stick around. Um, so, yeah, I, uh, I think it's a relatively new idea. People talk a lot about memes and... Which are yep. like I think less they're like less important actually on the grand scheme of things than like understanding memetics. But yeah, I think we're seeing a lot of like that's going to be one of the trends that's going to probably going to come to like dominate society. Like right now with this Ukraine Russia stuff, like you're seeing a lot of like highly memetic like M E M E T I C like like war going on. People are like making sure their takes spread. They're like trying to dominate news feeds um, on either side. So yeah, I think just something people need to be constant cognizant of like. Um, we've reached this point in society. I think where virality is like almost too strong in the meta game. Like it's too strong. What do you um, mean? And so, like a lot of times, there's so meta games are like the natural state of things. In like if like you play like tic tac toe, there's like a meta game. There's like an optimal strategy. Um, and optimal strategies aren't always balanced. They're often like deeply unbalanced. And I think in the spread of ideas and in sociology, virality has come to like dominate society. So like the internet is like. The, most of the content you see is high, high, highly viral. Mm-hmm. Um, truth gets destroyed by like false truths, just because false truths can be more viral. Yeah. Um, just like basically, virality is almost too strong. Um, so there's a lot of implications that has for society. That's some of the stuff I like. I like to write about, but um, yeah, it's like a relatively blog. new new thing. It's like yeah. no one really is talking about. I mean, there's like a lot of like stupid like tech bros that are like oh memetics and like how you can use it to like get like five percent more growth metrics, but this is like really like like society defining stuff, like how we transfer ideas and how, what ideas we prioritize. So, um, anyway. And when will we be seeing, um, some of your blog posts come out or is this like a, in the works process? In a a week, um, I'm working on a piece called anti-memetics, and I'm not going to talk about it (laughs) (laughs) because I, it's like, I think it's probably the most important idea I'll ever have in my life. Um, so um i do check that out when it's out sorry i'm shilling my blog not a non-existent blog no it works oh, and Jesus. by the time this comes out i actually think the blog will be out oh well, i'm terrible at writing so we'll see i'm sure but, it's uh, phenomenal i'm sure it's great do you have any advice i'll let you pick between people that are young and want to work at a startup or growth hackers for either uh, of those advice groups. for either of them mm-hmm. oh i mean 
I think people with growth hacking abilities know they're growth hackers, so I don't need to give them too much advice because I'm, you know, I'm competing versus them. So in general, I think <laughs> to kids, like, like advice is just people trying to build great things with their life. Um, yeah, I'd say the metagame for what startups are optimal to join risk reward has changed. So find something with like 20 employees that's like raised around or something and join that. So like before people told you to like join breakout list startups that were like have join a startup with product market fit with like a hundred something employees like Airtable. Sorry, mm-hmm. nothing wrong with Airtable, but like don't join that now if you're a young person. Like go and yeah. take a bet. Uh, there's a lot more upside on a, a small startup. And if you are a talented engineer or designer or growth hacker or God knows what, uh, talk to me. We are constantly hiring amazing people <laughs> party round. So awesome. yeah, my advice is, is join party round, guys. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. I'm really excited to hear what Jason has to say. No awesome. problem. I hope Jason doesn't, you know. <laughs> I hope Jason tweets at you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think I might be below his line. <laughs> oh. um, but one of, these, one of these days I'll get above it. So yeah, let's hope. Let's hope. Yeah. Well, thank you for being on, Josh. Hey, everyone. Producer Nick here. I want to tell you about the SaaS syndicate. If you're a founder of a SaaS company with a product and market, our investment team wants to talk to you. Head over to thesyndicate.com slash SaaS, S-A-A-S, to apply to raise from the SaaS syndicate. And you can join Jason's syndicate of over 9,000 accredited investors at thesyndicate.com. Producer Justin here. No cool startup? Check out OpenScouting.com, where anyone can refer a startup to our investment team here at launch. Even if you don't know the founder, if you're the first to flag a company for us and we decide to invest, you'll get 5K in cash or 10% of our carry. Hey, everybody. Producer Rachel here. Are you an early stage startup that has product and market, some traction, and are looking to raise at least $500,000? Apply today to Remote Demo Day for your chance to pitch to over 9,000 investors in Jason's syndicate. Submit your application at remotedemoday.com. Our next event is on April 27th. And if you want to learn how to invest in startups from the world's greatest angel investor, and no, we're not talking about Chris Saka, then head to angel.university to apply. The four-hour workshop costs $300 and all proceeds are donated to charity. To date, we've donated over $175,000 to various charities, and you can see the full list at angel.university slash charity. 